Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to episode number 105 of the John Riley Project. I'm so pleased to have here today Deputy Attorney General Pete Murray. P- Pete Murray running for judge this election season. How you yes, doing? Yes, I am. And I'm not the only one. <laughs> There's four offices being contested. Wow. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, I'm fascinated about your campaign and learning about it. You know, we, we normally interview politicians that are, you know, maybe partisan to a degree. You know, they're yes. running for Congress or city council or mayor. Um, but I think th- I think we're going to have a great conversation sure. learning about what it's like to run as to be a judge. Yeah. Well, I don't know how it is to be a judge. I, <laughs> I have a lot of good ideas. Uh, about what it might be because I've been in the courts for a very long time, but I'll be delighted to tell you what it's like running okay. a campaign to be a judge. So it's uh, it's interesting. I'll tell you that. Okay. <laughs> well, let's let's um, you know before we kind of get into the campaign okay. and what you're doing, just give me a little bit of your backstory and you know sure. tell me a little about who you are and you know where you grew up, where you went to school, and and what led you to this point. Good. I um, now I'm getting better at doing this and shortening <laughs> it up because it's, I could go on for a while. Long. Uh, I come from the East Coast, yeah. New York, New Jersey. Uh, you know, origin guy. Uh, left there to go to school at Duke University in North Carolina, and uh, ended up there. I came from a family that uh, I'm very proud of them, but not college educated. Um, mm-hmm. So th- I, I was literally stabbing in the dark. Um, as to what I would do post high school. So I, um, but I did know this, I couldn't, my family couldn't afford to pay for high school or for college, uh, certainly not a Duke tuition. Uh, so I, uh, I was looking at some other options, the Naval Academy. I, I was fortunate enough to have a, an appointment to the Naval Academy. But in that process, I found out about this thing called ROTC. Uh-huh. And I decided civilian schools sound a little more <laughs> relaxed to yeah, me. Yeah. Uh, and so I was fortunate enough to receive a ROTC scholarship, and that's how I was able to go to Duke. But that's what led me to, for the simple trade of tuition covered... Uh, all I had to do was give them a few years of my life, and uh, I spent eight years in the Navy uh, wow. as a Navy pilot. Uh, I came out of uh, Duke, went to flight school. I graduated on May 10th, and I started flight school down in Pensacola May 21st. Wow. Yeah, it, it, there was, uh, it happened fast. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I spent eight years. Uh, that's what brought me out here the first time. I spent a little time here before I went on to Hawaii. Tough life. My wife <laughs> likes to say, why weren't we together then? Uh, uh, I was uh, stationed in Hawaii, although I spent probably half of that time deployed overseas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I flew helicopters, combat helicopters off the back of small ships. Uh, Came back uh, here to San Diego and was an instructor pilot at a brand new squadron starting up the H-60s, which if you see a helicopter flying over today, uh, those are H-60s. When I got here, we had two in the entire Navy inventory. Uh, We were just starting up the whole program. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the... um, (laughs) You have a visitor right now. I love doggies. (laughs) This is our dog, Nona. Well, hello, Nona. (laughs) We have a Jenny, and Jenny's just like Nona except white. Okay. Yes, she's a a white lab. I think Nona was napping when you arrived, but she always likes to visit our podcast guests. (laughs) You know what? I like having a friend, so this is awesome. (laughs) This is awesome. So um, eight years in the Navy, I came back here as an instructor pilot, um, was getting out. I went east, uh, flew my probably best. <laughs> She's fine. She's fine. My uh, most fun, at least, is yeah. I flew my last tour or my last squadron was uh, flying for the Navy SEALs. I flew uh, air support for them. And, wow. And so that was that was a hoot. 
Um, got out of the Navy, went to law school, decided to go back to Duke. And so I did. Uh, Duke uh, Law School came out of there in 1990. That's when I met Anne. She was not at law school. We yeah. Met, through a mutual acquaintance, uh, got married in the middle of law school. I ended up getting married at the Duke Chapel. Really? So this little school that I had never heard of mm-hmm. up until my senior year in high school, I thought, well, what the heck, we'll go down there. Little did I know it would become such an important part of our life. Um, two degrees. My I was born there. My first dog was called Duke. So uh, <laughs> so if you, you might hear me, uh, John, we live pretty close to each other. Uh, yeah. When Duke basketball is on, you might hear me screaming uh, across the way. But, Were you a Cameron crazy? You know, in my day, mm-hmm. when I showed up, now I'll date myself. I, was, I got there in 1976. Duke basketball had had some really good teams in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys, um, oh, I'm trying to mullen and so forth. Um, at that point, they were not uh, on the top of the of the heap, so to speak. Uh, we had one player who had played in the 76 Olympics, um, a guy named Tate Armstrong, and he was a senior that year, and uh-huh. he was kind of big. And then they had uh, one guy out of New Jersey, Jim Spinarkle, and uh, a new freshman who was in my class, a guy named Mike Jaminski. And uh, that was really the start of it. So the point of the story is I'm in a freshman dorm. I saw a flyer for Duke basketball. I said, oh, I'll go to the a game. And I walked over, walked right in the door at Cameron, sat down, watched the game, left. You know, <laughs> big deal. <laughs> right. The next year, Gene Banks and Kenny Denard uh, show up and we go to the Final Four. Really? And the rest is history, yeah. In one year? That that next year, we ended up in the Final Four in 1978. Wow. Uh, Lost to, we, um, trying to recall now, did we lose to Notre Dame or, uh, oh boy, I don't remember that. But, so, I come out of there in 1980. and Duke basketball, by you know, it was good. But then uh, Spinarkle graduates, uh, Jaminski graduates with me. Kenny and and Gene were still there, and they were strong. Uh, but they start, and then and I think it was eighty one or so. Uh, Fisher was our coach. Uh, he left to go to South Carolina, and they hire this unknown guy with a name no one can pronounce. <laughs> And the, the, the alumni were livid. Now I'm out, and I'm yeah. in the Navy, and so now it's 81. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was 82, 81-82 season because Ann was there. It was her freshman year. I mean, her senior year. This guy named Mike Gujagujagadi, you know, whatever, <laughs> I, uh, I, how comes does, in. Yeah, right, right. And, and so he was hired, and uh, the rest is history. It's. Uh, it, I'll tell you one story. There's a guy who deserves – the real credit here is a guy named Tom Butters. Tom Butters was the athletic director at Duke mm-hmm. uh, at the time. And I remember now a couple years in, the Duke basketball stunk in 81, 82, or 82, 83, whatever. We just we were really not very good. Uh, brand new coach, and the alumni were going crazy. This is, this is uh, unacceptable. Um, you hired some guy who can't even pronounce his name. He's from Army, for gosh sakes. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, he was under Bobby Knight, but who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Butter stood up at a press conference and said, let me make one thing perfectly clear. Mike Krzyzewski yes. is our coach now, and he will be our coach for the foreseeable future. So get used to him. And so, again, what year was this? 82. 82. Yes. So now we are close to 40 years later. Yes. Wow. And 
Tom Butters was brilliant, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Uh, because uh, I go back. So after the Navy, I end up back at Duke Law. Now I'm in 87 through 90. And so I saw guys like Grant Hill. Yeah, those are uh, some good years. Yes. Uh, the year before me, before I got back there in 86, was Jay Billis, Tommy Amaker. Um, and and they went to the national championship game and lost to Louisville. Um, and then they went in, and I saw Bobby Hurley, um, oh, Danny Ferry, Grant Hill, Christian Leitner. Yeah. They were all there during yeah. law school years. And so in 1990, I graduate, but I remember that, that game when we played this team called UNLV. Oh, yeah. And it yeah, was yeah. not pretty. We were all in Cameron. Because you had now you're waiting in line to get yeah. in, and so we got in. We're all in Cameron watching the national, the semi, uh, the sem, semifinals or no, the national championship on the big screen. Yeah, and uh, I mean the game was over in the first ten minutes. It was painful. Bobby Hurley had stomach issues, had to mm. keep running and to the restroom and so forth, and. Uh, so that's how that ended. But it was, you were talking, you know, national championship um, stuff. The following year, I'm out here. I came out to, after law school, I got a job with a, a big firm in town, Shepard Mullen. That mm-hmm. brought me here. They actually offered me a job in L.A. And I said, well, I got a, I got a deal for you. <laughs> I'd love to come work for you all, but I really want to be back in San Diego. So um, one of the years that I interned. I uh, came, you know, that was when they were offering the job. And and they said, well, we'll send you down to San Diego. We have a smaller office there and see how that works out. And it worked out. And uh, I was given the offer to come to San Diego. So I took Anne and we left North Carolina with her crying like a baby because she doesn't like change. Uh, And here she's coming to San Diego. She'd never been. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I promise you, you couldn't get her out of Poway if you tried. Uh, This is... (laughs) been here now what 20 uh, 22 years and yeah she's not going anywhere uh so it was i guess it turned out to be a good choice yes it did but um the uh, but the where to finish the duke basketball thing that first year i remember you know i just passed the bar i'm at shepherd mullen and i'm going to pick my mother-in-law up at the airport because she's coming down that now we're in march semi oh, semifinals okay and Anne's bought me, boy, I really date myself, in as a reward, uh, a present for passing the bar the first time through. She uh, bought me a really nice CD player. Ooh. <laughs> so we're going to record the game. Oh. Um, or maybe I, I got a VHS player, I guess it was. Because, yes, it was a VHS, but a really high-end one. I oh, think it was 800 bucks. Can you imagine wow. that? Back then, that's Back a lot then, of money. It was a lot. <laughs> um, so we, uh, she's like, well, I said, I'm not watching this game. It's UNLV again. I, it was painful enough last year. I'll catch it. I, I'm fine. I'll go to the airport, get your, pick up your mom, bring her home. And Ann, she's taping the game. Well, that was... That infamous game when Duke beat UNLV, which was undefeated coming into that, yeah. runaway favorite to win it all. And Bobby Hurley, Christian Leitner, that was the year of the turnaround shot at Kentucky and the whole oh, shebang. Yeah, that's a classic as so, well. Yeah, it's uh, my first times at Duke. Uh, it was easy to get into a game. Now they camp out for days, yeah. sometimes weeks. 
Weeks. Yes, for the Carolina game. Oh yeah, it's three. I think I think they started three weeks in advance. Wow, it's like a tent city. It out is there. a tent city. They and they. Have you ready? It's called Shushevskyville. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> of course. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and it's. I keep track of this because I actually interview uh, students who are applicants to Duke University, the undergrad. Yeah. So I'm on the alumni admissions group, and I actually have three kids I'll be interviewing here uh, in the coming days as part of their application packet. But uh, so I need to keep abreast of what's going on back there in dear old Durham. Yeah. Um, but it was a fun, it was a fun part of the life. And then... Uh, That's a very prestigious school academically. It's pretty good. Yeah. You know, they, they like to say we're in the top 10. Uh, yeah. again, as I used to say to my kids, you know, I don't get hung up on a number. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're in a level of school that is impressive, yes. with, you know, and, and that's what you're focused on. So, uh, yeah, Duke has done well. They've worked really hard at their reputation. Basketball hasn't hurt. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah. amazing. And I usually ask, I'll give it, a, I'll give a, you know, a little heads up to the inter, you know, the ones that I interview in case they ever saw this, <laughs> which is I'll ask them why Duke don't tell me because their basketball team, because I usually say last I checked, you're not being recruited to play for Duke basketball. Yeah. <laughs> so don't go there for the basketball team. It's right. a lot of fun. It's a, big part of being a dookie yeah but don't go there simply because of their basketball team go there for the Mm -hmm. academic reasons Mm -hmm. and it does offer a lot it's why i went back there for law school it was uh the people i've met i you know some of my professors were john hope franklin one of the most noted uh uh, kind of slavery and civil rights uh historians uh who's now recently passed away uh he was from a slave family dr john hope franklin i got to be in a small seminar with him, taught by him and a, another one, uh, Walter Dellinger, Wally, we called him. Professor Dellinger was the Solicitor General under Clinton. Really? And uh, these were the people in a class of 120. You know, wow. These are what we were exposed to. So, yeah, it was it was a great education, and uh, I'm still a, a devout dookie to this day. Yeah, as you a, a should. Double, a double dookie. Yeah. So I came out and go to Shepard Mullen, uh, two years there, a great firm, great people, brilliant people. Um, but I knew I, I wanted to be in court more is what I started to feel. I never thought I would actually be a what I call the going to court kind of lawyer. Um, but I got there and then realized I thought going to court would be kind of fun. So I... Um, segued away from that paycheck at Shepard Mullen and uh, took more than a 50% pay cut to go to the DA's office. Mm. And uh, so I was a deputy district attorney. Okay. He started to call me that. I was one yeah. uh, for 12 years. And uh, I was in every courthouse in this county. I've tried, handled hundreds of cases, but have tried everything from a DUI to homicide and everything in between. First degree murder cases. I've wow. had, had them as well. Tried probably 75 cases to jury, over 100 to trial. Some some go to the judge, to the bench. We call it a bench trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even after 12 years, I decided, you know, it's there's got to be more. And um, I literally walked out the door and opened my own practice. Good for uh, you. Yeah. As a friend of mine who's a judge now yeah, yeah. Uh, would say to me, are you crazy? Because my little one, you know, yeah. who's now six foot three, uh, was one year old. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Jay, and, uh, and uh, you know, I had a one-year-old, a five-year-old, and a nine, ten-year-old and walked out the door and opened my own practice. Wow. And did that for eight years uh, and handled cases all around the state. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was – it's difficult as a solo practitioner. Uh, I did have sometimes contract attorneys working with me, but – 
incredibly rewarding because the difference I had as a DA, you're representing the people of the state. Yes, right. Okay, which is incredibly important and incredibly honorable. I mean, it's profound. When yeah, you, of course. Every time I would stand up and say – Deputy District Attorney Pete Murray representing the people of the state of yeah, California. Yeah. I mean, that's heady stuff. And, yes, it and is. I took it seriously. So, But it's also really unique to stand next to somebody who's looking at you and going, you are it amongst this mechanism of the court system um, and to feel the weight of that from an individual person. So um, did that for eight years and uh, for a host of reasons. Um, I got a call from – the attorney general's office, they needed some people, they needed somebody with more trial experience than they had. Right. Uh, I told them initially I wasn't looking for a job, but uh, after some discussion, we, uh, Ann and I, my wife, we said, you know what, let's, uh, maybe this would be a good move and get back into criminal prosecution, working for, uh, once again, representing the people of the state. And I've been doing that now for eight and a half years. Wow. As a deputy attorney general, uh, what we do is kind of unique. It's a bureau. A lot of the attorney generals do appellate work. In other words, mm -hmm. the DA has a case, post-trial, there's a conviction. If there's an appeal, that's handled by the attorney general's office, uh, a different bureau or branch than I'm in. Uh, we handle from beginning to end cases of medical fraud yeah. and elder abuse. And so, oh, interesting. Yeah, I oversee cases – you know, I'll handle on my docket at any one time is probably 60 to 70 cases. Now, they're all in different phases, but mm -hmm. we, from the date they come in from various places, we have investigators that work the cases up, decide whether to issue it, issue it, file it, bring it to court, try it if we need to. Mm -hmm. And I'll even handle the appeal if it comes to that right. uh, post case. So I've been doing that for eight and a half years. So I'd imagine there are some flagrant abusers. Of some of those systems, right? You know, I, I look at it – there is mm -hmm. in multiple ways. Uh, and, and we have – there is a connection between the two when we say elder abuse and medical fraud. But the medical fraud aspect of it is – I don't think most people know this until, you know, I have discussions with them. Uh, medical, especially with the Affordable Care Act, yeah. uh, now covers roughly one-third of the entire population in the state of California. Yeah, I believe yeah, that. 13 million people yeah. are, are under Medi-Cal. We right. have 39 people, 39 million here in the state, roughly about 13, maybe it's a little bit more by now, are covered by Medi-Cal. So it's an enormous system. Dollars, um, what did I see here? Uh, $75 billion a year it costs the, it, in Medi-Cal cost in mm -hmm. the state of California. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a hybrid system. Uh, meaning, and that's why I in part report to a federal side, the department, you know, CMS uh, is the name under the Department of uh, Health Care Services, mm -hmm. HHS, Health and Human Services. Um, but we have our own state department of health care services. And the way it works is the feds pick up a big chunk of that cost. So it only costs California about 18, 19 billion a year in Medi-Cal. Wow. And so you can imagine when you have those kind of numbers, there is a huge opportunity and incentive for the bad guys right. to find ways to collect some of that money. And, right. and there is more mechanisms by which fraud is committed than you can shake a stick at. You'd be 
amazed at what we see. Oh, yeah. Not as bad in San Diego. Now, with my job, I'm not in San Diego alone, although I do handle San Diego County, but mm-hmm. I'm in Imperial, Riverside, San Bernardino, okay. Orange County, and I even have some cases in L.A. County, and we try to – our next group is – they're up in Burbank, so they'll pick up most of the L.A. cases. So, But we're throughout the state. And uh, so I handle all those cases. Some of the ones we see a little bit more in San Bernardino, Riverside. The the flagrancy with which some of this fraud is is mind boggling. People will pay, uh, for example, they may have a counseling service that's picked up by Medi-Cal. Mm-hmm. They'll go out and find homeless folks, and just to get their Social Security card, or if they happen to have a Medi-Cal card, mm-hmm. pay them fifty bucks. This is just one example of countless numbers of frauds. And bring them in one time just to get their numbers, give them 50 bucks and say, see you later, bye, and then bill hundreds of visits. Wow. So yeah. so the abusers are not necessarily the patients, but they're the, the people that are offering the medical services. Yes, usually. In the medical fraud arena, that's usually the provider. Whether And it's, sometimes it's individual clinics. Sometimes it's uh, doctor's offices or doctor practices, uh, pharmacists, uh, dentists. Really? I, oh, I have – out in Imperial Valley, uh, in Imperial County, we have countless amount of cases where dentists we find are pulling teeth that were perfectly healthy. Really? Unbelievable. Oh, wow. Unbelievable. Wow. Um, and you, you see this stuff and you just shake your head and go, we just start chipping away one case at a time. Yeah, that's all we you can, can do. And, um, you know, the, the Bureau, and I do both, uh, or I have done both, we do both civil and criminal cases. And then the civil mm. side is usually much bigger, kind of like major pharmaceuticals, yeah. where they have uh, violated the law in the sense of, uh, but only to a civil level of fraud. Mm. So they'll get sued by a whistleblower, right? and then we pick it up the case and run with it. It's, they're required by statute to mm-hmm. file it with us, and then we decide if there's a case. So these will be sometimes major pharmaceuticals or a big major hospital industries right. that are collecting a lot more Medi-Cal dollars than they should be. Let's just say that. So <laughs> okay. we looked at, you know, we'll sue them to, get, you know, get it back. Right. Uh, and we do that. That's our civil side, which I did, you know, for a while. And and then the criminal side is when the case is, you know, more of a, an out-and-out criminal fraud. And I won't bore you with some of the distinctions there. But then we also do elder abuse uh, of cases against seniors, individual seniors as the victim, yeah. um, in all kinds of ways, whether they be neglect or, or assault, physical, sexual assaults in facilities. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You, wow. Some of it's just painful. Um, and financial frauds. And I do a lot of the financial fraud cases where people have, uh, for example, a caretaker, you know, is in a you know facility, gains – Access to a, a senior becomes friendly, and guess what? They access their credit cards and just – I mean, I've watched hundreds of thousands of dollars go away. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's in, uh, one of the classic ones we see. Often it's in the family. It may be a, mm. a step-aunt yeah. uh, or a step-niece uh, or something like that, and almost invariably – We'll find it. We'll see. I mean, how did you spend one hundred and eighty thousand dollars in such a short period of time? And now I've done it enough. I tell my investigators, head out to the casinos, start running their name. And you wouldn't believe how often we find people are running to the casinos and just spending God knows how much money, um, often ill-gotten gains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
gambling away. Well, good for you for, you know, catching these people <laughs> and holding them accountable. And trying to get your tax dollars back. Yeah, uh, that's Or true. at least yeah. keeping them to be used for the purpose that we all agree that they should be used for. So, so. so this is interesting. So on the, um, uh, the attorney general, you're for the people. For district attorney, you're for the people. That's correct. When you were operating your private practice, were you also doing defense work as well? Yes. I I did. You know, and this is something now I am running for judge, and we'll talk about that. And I do have some opponents, and they're great, very sharp people. Mm -hmm. Um, The the uniqueness that I'm bringing to this is I'm the only one who's been in private practice. Uh, All of us are government lawyers. Uh, There are four of us, Mm -hmm. uh, including myself. Uh, I like to say I am a career prosecutor because I've done it for 20 years. Yeah. But I also spend 10 years in private practice, major law firm, but also in my own practice. Uh, And in my own practice – I did all kinds of work. I mean, I did some criminal defense. Mm -hmm. Now I was picky. I I didn't represent cases I wasn't comfortable handling. And I don't mean that I wasn't competent to do them. There were, for example, child sexual assault cases. I wouldn't touch them. Um, Right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I was fortunate enough that I could afford to do that. I mean, if you're a private lawyer, you generally try to take what comes in the door. I didn't have to do that. I was able to concentrate on the areas I wanted to concentrate in. But I didn't want to just do that. So I did a lot of work. Uh, I handled cases in probate court. I handled cases Mm. in juvenile court. I handled cases in civil litigation because I had the background. So uh, unlike a career criminal prosecutor, I've done all that. Plus, I've been in all these courts uh, during the time that I was in my own practice. Uh, A big chunk of my work... Uh, I got hired, uh, not hired, I was contracted because I was an outside counsel for a for the Riverside Sheriff's Association, their, mm. their legal defense, their union up there. And so when their individual deputies had some kind of trouble, it could be a disciplinary issue uh, or whatever. Sometimes they were court cases. Um, I'd get a call and go up there and I'd represent the individual cop on the street who was facing whatever they were facing. Um, and that work, I did, I did quite a number of cases there in the eight years. Um, it was interesting because now I was on a different look, if you will. Yeah. I mean, most of the time as a criminal prosecutor, all the time, you know, the cops are my witnesses. Yeah. Um, I'm putting them on the stand to tell their story. Well, now I was representing them. And, mm. uh, you know, people like to say, oh, the DA or the or the, even the, the deputy attorney general, you represent the cops. No, we don't. No. We represent the people. Yeah, right. Well, now I was representing individual cops and uh you know and one of the things that came out of that and i tell this often is invariably i was going to say almost but it was invariably um some point in the representation i would have a a deputy sheriff look at me and say i never knew what it was like on this side Uh, ah yeah 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 it's a whole different ball game when the the power of the state is there allied against you. And, uh, you know, that that was a good feeling to feel like I was helping them try to overcome whatever that particular obstacle it was that they – Well, I would imagine that as a, as a judge, you know, having experience on both sides I think can give you a greater sense of perspective, maybe certain levels of context that a, you know, a career prosecutor may not have. Right. You know, I, that's interesting. It's it's a selling point, quite frankly, that I'm putting out there. But it's not just a, you know a buzz term. I, I, I talk about it because 
it, look, I will never uh, demean a, a career prosecutor because, in fact, I am one. I mean, yeah, 20 right. years yeah, is a career. Uh, <laughs> but I, I say this. When I left the DA's office 12 years, two years in a firm, 12 years at the DA, I thought I was a pretty good trial lawyer. I'd done yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, I became a much better lawyer as a private practice guy, representing oh. individual people yeah. uh, and, and handling different ca- kinds of cases, civil cases, probate. I represented a... I don't think I'll drop his name, but uh, a major league baseball player who became an agent. I, I represented him at one point in business negotiations. Interesting. Yeah. And so I got to do a lot of different things, but it gave me a different perspective on things um, than I could have ever gotten as simply a, a DA my yeah. whole life. And so I know it made me a better lawyer. And quite frankly, I think it will make me a better judge than I otherwise would have been because I do know what it's like. And I, you know, look, I, I talk with private lawyers. Um, I have some support. Okay. (laughs) You know, a plug. Family Law Bar Association has endorsed me. Why? Because they know I get what it's like to be an independent lawyer and dealing with all the pressures, billings, you know, having clients, Mm -hmm. collecting, you know, being able to paying bills and being in a courtroom and having to deal with that. And if you're a judge who's only been a government lawyer, you don't have a sense of what yeah, that is. Understood. And, and and also to know what those people when you're let's say you're in a criminal court, and I say this and I mean it. Uh, it sounds a little, um, you know, like I'm patting myself on the back, maybe. Uh, but it's my mantra. If I were to be ever so fortunate to wear the robe to be elected to the bench, um, everyone walking in that courtroom, there will be one word that will stand out, and that is respect. Mm. Every single individual in that courtroom is going to be treated with respect. I don't care who they are or where they come from. I don't care if it's the court clerk, the bailiff, uh, the court reporter, defense counsel, prosecutors, civil lawyers, criminal defendants. We're all people, and they will have their opportunity. They will be respected, and they will have their opportunity to be heard. And to tell their story. I'm not going to be light on people who commit horrific crimes. I I will make sure they're held to answer. But but that doesn't mean people shouldn't be treated as people. And and until you've been there standing next to people who have Mm. issues in their lives, I, I don't know that you can truly appreciate that. As I was asked in in another context, um, I said that, um, you know, look, there are some people we need to remove from the streets. These are people who, uh, Mr. Gardner, who the Chelsea King case. Oh, yeah. He should never walk Mm -hmm. in society again. Right. And I think I can say that, you know, I'm not supposed to, (laughs) but that's a done case. and, And I don't think anyone would ever disagree with that. Um, and that's clear for whatever reason. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but he cannot live in society. And, mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. should, we and us, the citizens should not be subjected to people like him. Um, so he needs to be removed. And that's it's not a good it's not pretty, but it's the only thing we got. The prison right. system. Right. But the vast majority of people in those courts right today are normal Half decent people who screwed up in one form or another, mm-hmm. and we got to help them get past that. Right? You know, sometimes it means a jail sentence. Sometimes it means let's get to the underlying problem. I can't cite it. I know many do, but if we looked at the criminal justice, the criminal system, criminal courts here in San Diego, I don't think anyone would argue with me that of all the cases, probably ninety percent of them either have a connection to drugs, alcohol, or mental health. Mm. Yeah, and if yeah. we can just get to the core of that, 
maybe they stop coming back to court. Yeah. And maybe they can go on and live life. So let's solve the problem instead of just warehouse them for a couple of years. They come out and lo and behold, they still have the problem and they're back in courts again. Right. Um, And there is a great system in place that's starting. This is a new, you'll hear the term collaborative courts. Mm. Um, You know, I don't get hung up on terms much. Call them whatever you want. But there's been some great results if we do it right. Which is, you know, it, it, they don't take serious offenses, but people who are committing a lot of the crimes that box up the courts uh, are put into the collaborative courts in their particular area. And I'm going to give you an example in a second. Uh, and then are given a fairly strict regimen of a program they must go through to address whatever their issues are. And uh, at the end, the goal is if they meet all their requirements, uh, they've been going to the court to see the judge who oversees that. Mm-hmm. Their case will be dismissed. And Interesting. Walk away from it. Um, the, there is a, a judge who's supporting me. Yeah. Uh, I think I can. You know. He. Well, it's po- it's out there. Uh, Roger Crowell. I, I okay. have many judges, uh, and you can look at my website and find out there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all public. But uh, Judge Crowell, who's been on the bench a very long time and is a former military person like myself. Uh, he was really the impetus befi- behind forming the, what we call the veterans courts that exist now. Mm. And uh, no surprise, many of the especially low thefts and assault cases that involve vets have some com- connection to PTSD. Oh, of course. Issues. And we're not surprised by that. It yeah. was what we've subjected the military folks through for the last now 10 years. Mm. Um, they're coming back a little damaged. And, yeah. and, and yeah. you know, I, I listen – uh, to General Mattis, you know, they're not damaged. You know, these are people who will be fine. They might need a little help to progress through, but these are great people. And so let's find a way where we can address it. Well, Rod, Judge Crowell in the Veterans Court com- started a program, and he would tell you it was pretty strict. I mean, they had to come, I, I forget how often it is, regularly back to court. They had to, you know, complete a program. They're getting treatment for their PTSD issues, if that's the particular case. Mm-hmm. Um, and he asked me when we sat down, um, he said, what do you think the recidivism rate was? Oh, and you're like, okay, it's probably helped a lot, right? You know, because recidivism, meaning someone who commits a crime gets punished, what's the chances they come back to court for yeah. yet another crime? Yeah. It's incredibly high. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, th- I think it as would a be. a general rule. Yeah. For, for veterans, it was no different until they instituted this system. Ah. Um, and I said, you know, so I'm thinking, gosh, because I don't, I wasn't involved in the veterans court myself. I'm in a different area. And so I'm thinking, well, let's see, it's Judge Crowley's kind of teeing me up. I'm saying, I'm guessing it was really low, Judge, like what, maybe 25 percent, you know, Uh which would be exceptionally low. Yes. And he said it was zero. Zero. I said zero. Zero. Not one of those in the initial period. Now, I'm I'm not sure those numbers have stayed the same, but they made some changes to the program. Um, But for a while there, not one of the participants in the program came back to court over X amount of years. And guess what we did? I think it costs money to run these courts. Yeah. If we're not having these guys, these folks come back to court, we're saving, we're making really good use of the people's money. No doubt. Look at it. Right. It's, uh, you know, so when I see things like that, it's, it's what I really go, you know, that's, that is that, that kind of greater awareness uh, of the issues, which at the end of the day, 
comes from experience. And, and wow. you know, there's a lot of things you can talk about. What do you want a judge to be? Well, we can't talk about policy, really. Uh, and we can talk more about those <laughs> things. And I'll show you how we avoid that because we're required to. Let's yeah, of course. Start with that. Yeah. Um, but so what are you looking for in a judge? I mean, I, I don't think there's any substitute for experience. Um, and the breadth and depth of experience is, you know, what I think really helps make for a great judge. Also, we need people with a good demeanor, mm -hmm. relate, ability to relate to people and all mm -hmm. those kinds of things that are critical. But if you don't have the experience, how are you making judgment on and rulings in cases you know, that you don't have experience to turn back on. Right. I mean, obviously, education, you got to be smart. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I like to think the Duke degree uh, <laughs> means I can write a brief, for example. I, I, I'd say so. I hope so. Um, but there, there's no substitute for experience. And Well, this uh, is interesting because I know for me as a voter, when I go yeah. into the ballot box, you know, when, you, when you're choosing, you know, a politician, especially if they're running for Congress. Sure. You know exactly where they stand on some pretty controversial issues. You do. And then you'll choose accordingly. But for the judges, I, I don't really know them right. because they're not out in public. They kind of are in this sort of neutral zone. They are. As they should be. Sure. Um, but I never – I often will not vote for judges because I'd rather not just cast a random vote. Okay. Um, but it's always – I always wonder why are judges elected in the first place? Yeah. Well, y you tee me up there, John, because you don't know this because you haven't met. But I talk about this. I just came from a, you know, a an organization and spoke earlier today. And I told them, you know, this is almost, uh, you know, it's uh, we can get to this, why I'm even running. But um, uh, it, the lack of educational or awareness of the voter is is a problem. Mm -hmm. And I start with this, um, is that, and I can tell you, well, we can get to that. It's the importance of the of the justice system. Now, maybe I'm biased. I mean, it's what I've done my whole now adult career yeah. beside the Navy. Uh, but for 29 years, I, I've been a lawyer in different areas. And mm -hmm. so I have a passion for the justice system, and I make no bones about that. Right. And I know this, that good judges can ensure that justice is done. Uh, mm. And can make the the justice system work and work well, and bad judges can destroy it. And I've watched both. Now yeah, yeah, we're fortunate yeah. here in San Diego County; we, we've got a pretty darn good bench. There's a lot of really good judges, mm -hmm. not a hundred percent, but a lot of good. <laughs> and uh, so we should feel fortunate here in San yeah. Diego. I've been in many other counties. Uh, you know, as I said before, uh, there are some places you think, "How did this person get on the bench?" Um, but they make critical decisions impacting people's lives every single day. Count numbers of lives. Yeah, yeah. And so think about that vis-a-vis -vis very important roles, legislators, congressmen, you know, state assembly, whatever. But they're hopefully deliberating <laughs> and coming up with a, yeah. a, a bill that we won't go too far down that path. Yeah. But judges are making decisions every day impacting people's lives. Yeah. And if we think about that as citizens, we should go, that's a critical role. So we need to get educated. Well, as I'm out there, now here's some numbers for you. There's about 1.8 million voters, registered voters here in San Diego County. It's mm -hmm. a big county. Yeah. And just in case anyone didn't know, judges run countywide. Okay. This is entire county of San Diego. So there's only four offices that do that. The DA, the sheriff, the tax collector, treasurer, tax collector, uh -huh. and judges. 
Ah. Everyone else has some slice, you know, obviously city council. But even our congressman, Scott Peters, our congressman, who's, yeah. a, who's endorsing me, by the way, oh, hey. um, <laughs> is only has a slice of San Diego County. I That's mean, right. a pretty good slice. Yeah. We cover from the, the border with Mexico to Oceanside and all the way out to, in, you know, to Imperial County. It's a big place to cover. Um, so judges who are, you know, running in those are trying to reach these people. And so, and there's 1.8 million registered. The estimate, depending on who you talk to, is about seven to 800,000 will actually vote. Okay. Which, yeah. Even that was like, wow. I mean, I've heard the numbers, but 1 million people don't vote at all? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so less than half of the registered voters vote. Right. Now, depending on the election, it might go up. Maybe we'll get a little bit more. Of those, so let's call it 800,000. We're estimating... 400,000 will vote for judge. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. The rest, the rest will leave it blank. Yeah. And so, you know, that pains me a bit because it's like these are important jobs that are handling cases every day, as I said, people every day. And, you know, 400,000 out of 1.8 million are actually weighing in. The rest are not. Um, and as I said, and, I, and I'm going to give you a pass here, John, because that's my second worst Scenario. The worst scenario is what I call the Del Mar racetrack approach. I'm going to bet on the color. Uh, Pick pink, whatever. And people will tell me, you know what? I usually, I don't know. I look at a name. I go, okay, I'll pick him. And I think, is that how we're picking a judge? A judge, I know. I, I mean, please tell me that's not happening. So where I go with that is please, and this is where I hope that really are, we talked about this. Our goal here coming today is... It's about educating ourselves enough to go, who are these people running? Yes, you know, yes, and, exactly. And, and spend enough time mm-hmm. to figure it out so you can actually vote for the one you think will do the best job. And you know what? I'll tell you this um, to any voter out there. Read on it. You vote for whoever you think is the most qualified. And I'm fine with that. Now, I wouldn't say that if I didn't think <laughs> I'm pretty comfortable that they can't ma- no, my opponents can't match my qualifications. So I can say that. Um, mm-hmm. But I stand by it. If you think someone else is more qualified, then by all means, vote for them. But please vote. Right. You know, I go into the high schools and teach constitutional law. And, and mm-hmm. we talked about that a little bit. Uh, but just to touch on that, that's what I do with the kids. You know, these are sometimes 11th, 12th grade, you know, a history class, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes a government class. Some are AP, some are not. And I try to get around. I don't just go to Poway High, although I have been there. <laughs> I've been to RB and, and you know, uh, Canyon Crest and on and on. But I've been to Abraxas. I've been to Lincoln High School, Morse High School. I've gone down to San Ysidro and up to Escondido. And I do that for a reason. I want to talk to these kids. They're, they, the kids are great. I love the kids in high school. Uh, but I usually ask them, I said, you know, how many of you are 18? Especially if I have a senior. Yeah. And so you get the pretty good collection now, or mm-hmm. 18. Okay. How many of you voted? Oh, yeah. Very few, if any. No, no. Like, okay, fair enough. I mean, you're brand new to yeah. it. How many are, will turn 18 in the next year or two? Oh, yeah. Now you've yeah, got a whole yeah. bunch. All right. Are you going to vote? Oh, okay. <sighs> and then I try to catch them off guard. I go, if you don't, then shut up. Oh. And they're like, <laughs> what do you mean? I said, it's, it, look, people have literally, I don't like to overplay this, but have died for your right to vote, to have a say in this system. That's true. How can you not do it? Mm-hmm. How can you not take the time to go, I want to make an it. It is your vote. And we can all get cynical and, oh, my God, the government's a mess. But if we're not going to vote, then we've really lost our voice, haven't we? Yeah, it is right. the one thing we have. So please 
read up. You know, you'll get these little mailer, you know, the the, the voter registration guide, yeah. um, you know, that comes in the booklet and has write-ups. It's not a lot, but you'll be able to tell something. If you really want to, you can research a little bit more and find we every candidate has a website. But educate ourselves and make a choice. And then I get to, you know, well, I get it. I don't, I'm not a lawyer. I don't go into courts. And I go, are you sure? And they say, what do you mean? I said, well, do you have a kid? I mean, are you sure your kid won't maybe get picked up for something silly and now ends up at juvenile court? Yeah. Who's going to make the rulings on that? A judge. Right. Okay. So you have all good kids. They're never going to be in problem. Do you have family issues? Not yourself, maybe, but maybe your siblings or whatever. Do they end up, you know, having a marital split? Mm Mm-hmm. Who's going to make the decisions about the set dissolution of a, uh, or the separation of assets, right? Or the custody of the kids? Uh, a judge is going to make those calls. Yeah, a judge. Uh, how about in probate court? Do you have parents? Maybe they have an estate. Who's going to make a call about how those assets will be distributed? A judge is going to make those calls. And of course, maybe you're in a civil case. You know, you get sued for something in your business. I don't know. Who's going to make the most important rulings in any case? It's the judge. Yeah. And so for those of us, you know, that say, well, I don't really deal in the courts, I said, but you never know. You might. Yeah, you might. And you want to make sure that that person sitting up on that bench is qualified, is intelligent, has the experience and the demeanor to make judgments that are going to infect your life. And. Anyone who would tell me, well, I'll never deal with the courts, I say, <laughs> you know, I hope you don't have to. Right. But that is not a good way to go forward. Yeah. So it is an educational process, and it is one of the main things I do is to go out there and say, please just read up on the folks who are running. Yes. And make your call. Um, the tough part, of course, 1.8, a big county, 1.8 million people, and most people judge. I didn't even know judges were yeah, exactly. Um, it's hard to get noticed and make, make enough noise, uh, which is why I appreciate the invitation by you, because that's really what I wanted to do here today is to have this discussion about getting people out and – educating themselves enough to go, who is this person? I don't just look at a sign and go, oh, I saw some guy's name. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, who is it? Or some, you know, some person read up on them. There is, um, we talk about the need for diversity in the courts, which I support a hundred percent. We want the courts to reflect the community. That's right. But we also want diversity of professional practice. Mm. So do we want all career? You know, I spent a lot of time doing it. Criminal prosecutors. Right. Uh, the, we need a lot more than that. Right. And so those, I mean, I gained some incredibly valuable skills that will translate directly as a judge being a criminal prosecutor. But there's a whole lot more, a whole lot more that will be necessary. Um, and that is one of the bugaboos about our, our system. There are too many prosecutors. Mm. Too many. It's good to have former, yeah. you know, career prosecutors. But if they're all career prosecutors on the bench, don't we have a skewed system that is not diverse huh. in the professional Fair sense? Fair point. So there you go. So why are you running? Why? I mean, this this you know, tremendous career, mm. um, you know, for the people as as an attorney of the private practice. Now, why why do you want to be a judge? Oh, that's a good question. I asked myself. Um, I mean, I, I, of course, have the answer or my answer, but it's 
I, I will say this. I've run a, you know, I have some other offices being run for their four, uh, running four seats open. Uh, mm-hmm. These are not contesting a, a sitting judge. All four of these seats, the judges are retiring. So these are open, will be open seats. Okay. And I can tell you how that happens uh, in a sec if you're interested. Okay. But, um, you know, and I've had some who say, oh, I've wanted to be a judge since I was in high school. You yeah, know? Yeah, I, yeah. Okay. I'm not one of those. I mean, not that I haven't seen it for 29 years, but that really wasn't my focus. Um, I was just doing what I was doing and, and letting my career lead me to where it, it led me. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, that's what I said. I, I didn't leave the DA's office because I didn't like it. It's like, no, I want to do something more. I want to do something different. And I moved on. Um but in the last few years, you know, as I thought about it, I mean, I'm a, I, I hope people would agree with this. I, I'm a humble guy. I don't like talking about myself. I just do what I do. And um, and the last thing I want to do is try to convince people, oh, I'm so great. Make me a judge. Um, and and so that, that notion of getting out there and trying to convince people of how good I am was just, uh, you know, yeah. just didn't sit with me yeah, very well. I understand. And I had some people talk to me and said, look. Um, you have credentials that people can't meet. Uh, you have the experience you need. We, you know, people that know you know that you'd be, you have a great demeanor. It'd be very suitable for the bench, et cetera. Um, if not you, who? Uh, and and uh. you know, I, and I had thought about that. And, mm-hmm. and and it comes down to this. I, I touched on it before. For 29 years, I've been in the justice system. I have a passion for it. I believe in it. It's why I go to the high schools. I love talking to these kids about constitutional law. I mean, maybe I'm a little nuts over this, but I really love this stuff. I love the law. I love how it works if it's working well. Um, and I know, as I said, how critical a judge is, because I've watched it for 29 years, to making it work well. And when I thought about it, I said, you know, what are you going to do? Spend so many more years doing what you're doing and then just retire? Yeah, that's not an option. You have the opportunity to aid the justice system by adding to an already good bench. Ah, right and, on. And so how do you not run? And I said, you know, kind of answered that, as you know, <laughs> by saying you're right. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I mean, it was daunting, the notion of taking it on. Fortunately, I had a lot of people who judges and others who know me say, you got to run. And, but you're uh, passionate about the system. You're passionate about justice. Um, wh- incredibly yeah, so. Uh, if not who, then what would you say? If not. If not me, who? Then who? Uh, exactly. And, and I will say this, and I mean it. If I felt there was someone more qualified than me that came into this race, I would concede tomorrow. Well, I'm not conceding. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if if Justice Kennedy came out of retirement, Supreme Court Justice Kennedy, and decided to run against me, I'd say, okay, (laughs) you can can have the seat, Justice. Um, But that's not the case. And, you know, and I I hope that I never forget that if I was so fortunate to win, because I always want to feel that I'm not really almost worthy of being up there and sit in judgment of people. I want to be humble enough to to feel the weight of that every day. I'm prepared to take that on, but I never want to take it lightly. I don't care how horrific the crime, when you sentence someone to some enormous amount of years in prison, it's profound and, and huge. And I never want to take it lightly. In a simple DUI, if someone, you know, whatever decisions I have to make, I want to take them all. I, I want to be serious about every one of them. Um, every decision, every judgment, uh, it's because these are people's lives. And, and, and I'll never forget that. 
and because I've seen it now for 29 years. And so I've seen enough people treat a courtroom, judges, like their own personal fiefdom. Yeah. And, and, and nothing, nothing chaps me more. Um, to see that, you know, that mode or to be flippant, uh, a little mm. arrogant. Yeah. I know more than you. Yeah. Now, let's face it. Some judges are brilliant people. But let the lawyers lawyer, mm. you know, have the opportunity to present their case, then make your ruling. You're part of a system. You're not it as right. a judge. You're just one critical part. Uh, but that's what I tried to remember. I go, you know what? You need to, you need to try to get on the bench. And, and kind of it's really as simple as that. I won't think about what it takes to actually do it and running around the county and all that kind of stuff. But this is uh, this is a great story. I mean, with your background, how you led led you to this place. Yes. To me, you know, I knew, I knew you were an attorney. I didn't really know the detail of your background, but it seems like a very natural thing. Like you said, where your career takes you, and, yeah. and given your passion for the justice system and. And really, this is a key part of what makes this country work, yeah. you know, and yeah. playing that role. That's very special. It is. I'm glad you didn't know more than, oh, yeah, Pete, because we knew each other from, you know, Little League days. Exactly. Um, and I don't walk around trying to tell people this is what I do. I, I, when I'm in Little League, I'm a Little League coach. That's exactly. what I did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and playing with the kids. Yes. Um, and I, I'm, I'm glad when people don't know because I haven't done anything to build a resume. Whatever I did, I just did the paths that kind of presented to me and took my best shot. And if that put together a resume that people go, oh, that's pretty cool, um, well, good. I mean, but I wasn't trying to – I wasn't going to go, oh, how will this look when I run for judge someday? <laughs> I mean, it, it was really the opposite. You know, as I began to say maybe I should run, I said, okay, well, maybe those are – some decent qualifications and hopefully the people agree. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it's well, fun. It's let's fun. switch gears a little sure. bit and let's sure. kind of get into that educational space. Yes. So there, for me as a, as a layman, I don't really know the system in detail, but there are so many levels of judges and courts and yes. there's municipal and superior and there's appeals courts. And what role are you um, running for? Mm -hmm. And then can you just explain the system generally? Sure. Um, I am running for judge of the Superior Court. It is the Superior Court for the County of San Diego. Judges are technically state employees. So you're, oh, okay. you're, you're really a state court judge. Now you're elected within whatever jurisdiction here, San Diego County. Every county has their own you know, subset of state court judges, you know, every county, you know, mm -hmm. county of Riverside, Santa Clara, you name it. Um, so those are state court judges. We no longer have municipal court judges oh. or, or courts. We don't have I didn't them know at all. That. No, we've done away with them. Uh, we actually merged them uh, quite a number of years ago. Okay. Uh, so the muni court judges at the time magically became superior court judges uh. Uh, literally overnight uh, by active legislation. Mm -hmm. Uh, we did that for efficiency reasons and so forth. And and there's some some stuff about that, that I think is really beyond where we want to go about what you technically are to, prior to, you know, um, felony sure. arraignment or prior to uh, an information in a criminal case. I mean, it's mm -hmm. considered a magistrate, but that's not important for our purposes. Every judge sitting is a superior court judge. Now, we do have 
within the superior court, we do have some commissioners. Now, they are hired by the court. They act as subordinate judicial officers, and they mm-hmm. can only handle certain cases. Traffic mm. all, traffic court is, by and large, commissioners. Uh, small claims is pretty much commissioners. Or we have another wonderful thing. It's volunteer lawyers come in and become, we call them pro tem judges, to hear – Small claims cases, for but example. But they get to wear the robe, too. They get to wear the robe, yeah. you know, and they go down there to Kearney Mesa <laughs> yeah. or wherever. Uh, so those are fairly limited. The rest are superior court judges. So whether it be a misdemeanor DUI uh, or a felony murder, you're before a superior court judge. Interesting. Um, and every county has it. If a case is appealed, you know, post-verdict or you know, however it may need mm-hmm. to get appealed, I won't get into a legal lesson here. Uh, our next level in the state court system is the district courts of appeal. And here in Cal- in San Diego, as well as you know, neighboring counties, uh, our district court is the fourth district. So the fourth district court of appeal is our appellate authority right. above the superior courts. If you appeal a case out of there, and I have handled cases uh-huh. at the fourth district. Mm-hmm. Um, if you appeal a case out of the fourth district, you go to the California Supreme Court, the highest court in the land of California. Right. Um, and I've taken a petition to the California Supreme Court as well. So uh, oh, Exciting. Yeah. it's uh, They didn't want to get oral arguments, so I didn't get to argue before the mm. justices at the Supreme Court, but I have done multiple oral arguments at the District Court of Appeal, uh, which is a whole different approach. It's not a trial court. Now you're standing in front of three to five judges. Yeah. It's, you know, kind of, kind of inter- interesting. But... Um, so that's the, the kind of the structure of the state court system. Yes. And but then we have the federal court system. Yeah. And so every federal court starts with their district. We have the Southern District of California is the one that's downtown San Diego. Mm-hmm. But they cover more. They go out to Imperial County and, and up north uh, to a point until you get to uh, the Central District, which is out of L.A. Uh, these are the federal courts, the ones that we all hear about, the president appoints and so forth, uh, judges. Ah. Those are life terms. So if you are appointed a federal court judge, you will serve for the balance of your life as long as you want to or unless you're removed for cause, i.e. impeached. Right. Um, but you are never uh, – you never uh, run for election. Uh, above the district courts of appeal – is the federal appellate level right? The Ninth Circuit, right? And they're, they're people, the ones that are always in the news. Yes, they are always in the news. <laughs> yeah. um, we, we won't go have to go uh, down we'll, there. We'll leave it there. Yeah, um, okay. But they, you know, it's interesting. It's yeah. obviously uh, this is no uh, nothing, no big revelation by me. It's going through some changes. There's yeah. new appointments to the Ninth Circuit, uh, and abor- above the Ninth Circuit, if you were to go above the Ninth Circuit, you're going to the United States Supreme Court. Wow! And there it is. That that is so, our structure of courts. But there, are these like parallel hierarchies or how, how does a case maybe determine if it goes the federal channel or the state channel? Yeah, it's the short answer is where the case is filed. You can file in state court or federal court. Now you can't file every case in federal court. The federal court has limited jurisdiction. Um, so they can only handle cases that are federal court jurisdiction. And that is a whole area of law. Um, I even took a course in law school on uh, fed, federal court jurisdiction. What what can bring a case into 
federal court. Uh, in the civil world, there's a very famous case, International Shoe. My civil procedure <laughs> professor back at Duke will be very, very impressed that yeah. I remember that, which talks about what we call, uh, you know, their, their, their contacts out of state. So in other words, if you end up into a dispute with someone in Nevada, where are you going to sue them? In Nevada or California? Yeah. You know, almost invariably end up in, um, or let's say you're suing a, a business that's multi, you know, multi-state, national. Let's say you're going to sue Nike for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah. I don't know. I don't want to pick on <laughs> Nike, but um, <laughs> even if you sue them in state court, they'll get that removed to federal okay. court. So um, it's kind of the 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 geography of the case. Of the case. That's a great way of putting it, John. Uh, the geography of the case. I don't know that I've ever heard that, but. That's a good. That's a good phraseology. Wow. I like that. All right. There well, you hey, see, you're on your way. Well, ting there for me. Yes. There. <laughs> you know, in the criminal arena, uh, people say all the time. For example, well, we'll charge. You know, if you charge murder, you can charge murder in the federal court. Well, the federal court doesn't have a per se murder charge. Ah. Which is why you'll say, well, why are they charging, you know, a violation of their constitutional rights, you know, of their, you know, kind of thing. You know, why is – why was that not charged as a murder? Because federal courts don't have the same crimes that we have. It has to be a federal crime. So you don't get – they don't just duplicate the charges we have. Um, They have to be kind of federally oriented, which is why things like – you know, uh, extortion via the mails, um, mm. you know, interstate commerce. It's, mm-hmm. it's really connected to interstate commerce. That right. is probably, in essence, what gives the federal courts their jurisdiction, interstate commerce. Uh, now I'm simplifying things. Please don't hold me uh, to that, to yeah. people. Um, it's much more than that, but that's kind of a short way to say it. So if it doesn't, you know, if there, there are crimes across state borders, now you're going to end up with a crime that can be charged in federal court. But they're but they're not duplicative. So there are cases uh, that are uniquely state court kind of charges that mm-hmm. don't have a corollary in the federal court. That makes sense. They just don't. And so, you know, sometimes you – there are cases where you could be ending up – and this is – people say, how can that happen? I'll give you an example how, you know, we uh, – um, the the cops up in L.A. going back quite a ways in the Rodney King case. Oh, yeah. He gets acquitted. Yeah. Case is over. That's true in the state court. Mm-hmm. Double jeopardy is attached. Um, they cannot be charged uh, again in the state court. They can be charged in the federal court. Ah. And they were. So the double jeopardy doesn't apply in that situation. You know, it's a whole different judicial system. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the – thumbnail, if you will, of the two court systems. They, there's sometimes an overlap. So let's say this happens all the time, uh, in particular high-end cases, murder cases. Uh, someone gets convicted. They go to uh, trial, get convicted. They take it to on appeal. Um, some of these are automatic, but they take it on appeal for district court. It's denied. They are still, you know, they move on. They Appeal it now to the California Supreme Court. Complete review of the trial record. It's denied. You move on. Then they file a federal habeas corpus petition Mm. in federal court, which is really a way of saying I'm being unlawfully detained and deprived of my constitutional rights Mm -hmm. because I was unlawfully convicted. Ah. And it starts a whole different path starting in the U.S. District Court that could go all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. Wow. Yes. So, and people wonder, perfect example, death penalty cases. Yes. That's why they take so long. 
ah, in essence, yeah. uh, because it takes so long to work through the appellate system. And then you start in the federal appellate system. Right. Invariably. I mean, they don't have to file a habeas petition, but they off, almost invariably do. And now it's going to work its way up through the federal courts. Well, that's why, I mean, there's a little bit of a tangent when they talk about the death penalty and some people approach it from a financial perspective and just voters. Yes. And the, and the, the argument is, is that it costs more you know, to keep them on death row, you know, because mm. they're going through that process. Yeah, that's, well, it, or, it costs a lot of money. It costs yes, a lot of money. Does. I may not be articulating that, right? But, but yeah, because I didn't know that, that we go up one channel, hit a dead end, and then go up the other channel. That's right. I mean, you get ruled against by the California Supreme Court, not necessarily is the case over. So, I, and I, I've had cases like that, cases I prosecuted that was a first-degree murder. It was a horrific case. It went through all the way up, and then she filed – it was a female – a 22-year-old female model executed a mother in a front door. Whoa. Yeah, in front of her 10-year-old boy. Whoa. Yeah, and eight – well, no, ten, eight, nine, and seven. Those were my two witnesses, the kids. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You don't forget about that stuff. No. Um, she was convicted. Um, testifying against their mom. No, no, testi- no. The mom was the victim. Okay, pardon me. Yeah. And uh, boy answers door. The woman says, go get your mommy. The boy walks away. He's a 10-year-old boy. Um, she comes out with her little girl who's seven. Blam, blam. 357 Magnum right to the chest. Whew. Mom goes down. Little girl was unable. I, I had to bring her in. I did. She she couldn't even talk. Oh yeah, but the little boy. Um, it was the it was the most direct evidence I had is his his identification of who the woman was at the front door. He didn't see the shooting. He had walked in the back room. Um, but uh, the day that he I put him on, I didn't. I mean, I I remember it like it was yesterday. There were TV cameras, the whole shebang. Yeah, yeah. People, oh, you know that's really like big time. You know that's TV. Yeah. Stuff, And yeah. I said, yeah, you know, I didn't look at it that way. I was looking at what am I doing to this little boy? Yes, I needed to convict this woman. She had committed first-degree premeditated murder. Um, but I came away with this believing because he told me and his dad told me. Um, they said, you know, he wants to be there for his mom. And, uh, you know, I, I remembered that and I put him on and he couldn't talk for a while and I, yeah. it took a while yeah. and I finally, he was too scared to say anything and I literally walked across the well. I've been trying cases for a while yeah. at that point. So I had a few, I wouldn't call it a trick. I, I just stood between him and the defendant so she he could not directly see her. Yeah. And I just said, Jesse, what's his name? I said, Jesse, come on, son. Do you see the woman in the courtroom? And he just shaking his hand, picked it up and pointed, that's her. Uh, and I just I thought I, I hope I mean I, I did keep in touch with the family for a while I you know he might, by now he's you know probably in his twenties um, I, I hope he felt that he played a part in doing justice for his mom and I'm that, sure he and did. that was where I I came down because I I never wanted to feel like I just need to get the conviction and because I could see the trauma that this little boy had already had wow. and now continued to to go through. The point of that story is that case went all the way up to the California Supreme Court and, and was denied. They found no error at any point in the trial. She filed a habeas corpus petition. It finally ended in the Ninth Circuit. Um, and it took, I'm going to say about nine years. Wow. And so that young woman is sitting in prison 
pretty much for the balance of her life. Wow. Yeah. So she just kept appealing the case. Yeah. Um, and yeah, burning through a lot of resources. Yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, we we hear this. Um, forget about death row because it is more costly because they're isolated. Um, every prisoner, roughly in the state prison system, per year, the cost to house them is roughly, I mean, they love the phraseology, roughly the cost of a Harvard education. Wow. Per year. So wow. That's Harvard tuition every year for every prisoner. So from a strictly cost basis, it's a really costly system. Interesting. But what's the alternative? I mean, that's probably the other question. I mean, um, I, of course, you know, a little heads up, won't be able to opine about the death penalty one way or the other. Um but I think about to the people who would say, you know, I, I'll answer it with questions myself. If someone says, oh, it costs too much for the death penalty, just, you know, make it go away. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mr. Gardner, who murdered Chelsea King and the other gal up in Escondido, um, the only way they got to find it where she was, the Escondido gal, um, was to take the death penalty off the table if he would tell them where she was. Mm. And he did, and so he is not facing. He's not on death row. He will. He's spending life in prison without the possibility of parole. Uh, but he gave that family closure. They found her body, and uh, he admitted to it. He, the guy admitted to two horrific murders. And I know, and I won't speak for them, but I think the Kings were totally on board with that. Um, I know they talked at length with, you know, Summer Stephan, the, the DA, mm-hmm. or the, who's prosecuting in the case at the time, with Bonnie Demonis, the DA at the time. Um, I shouldn't say Summer was, well, she was involved in that case. Um, but it, uh, you know, so you look and you go, you know, if we have some leverage with the death penalty. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it, 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 which is why I guess I boil it down. It's not as easy, like most issues. It's not so simple as, well, it costs too much. Yeah. Well, some you just hear those comments from voters, and, and, and understood. Know, yeah, people make comments. Yes, uh, but from a judge, you, you have to do the right thing. You know, cost is not really an issue when no. you're when you're determining judgment. Well, correct. In making a decision, you can't say, "Well, because it's more costly." Yeah, right. no. You you have to. What you have to do first and foremost. This is the answer. When people say, "Well, what do you think about the death penalty?" The answer is simple. As a judge. Um, and most of us, I think, I, I mean this I, because of what I was saying before. It's about following the law. Yeah. I'm not going to make up the law. Right. You're not electing me to craft my own laws that I like and ones I don't like. And f- for better or worse, the death penalty is still on the books in California. Um, and I, I have you – know, my opinion is irrelevant about that, really. It's on the books. It is the law. And I am required to follow the law. And I don't think any voter would want me decide, you know what, I think better because I'm smarter <laughs> and we're not going to follow that law, whatever it may be. So first and foremost, it is follow the law. Now, when you do that, there's bound to be some level of interpretation or or discretion required, um, which is a whole other area I'd like to touch on at that point. But um, uh, when that comes, uh, then then that's where it's important that you have judges who are able to – rely on their education, their intelligence, their experience, and everything else they can bring to the plate to make the best judgment they can. So are, yeah, let's, let's talk about discretion. So are there cases where – I'm just going to make something up – where 
if a certain um, crime convicted, you get this penalty. Yes. Let's just, I'm going to make numbers up, 10 sure. years. Okay. Okay. Can a judge use their discretion and say, we're going to give this person a lighter or greater sentence based on certain circumstances? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Now, there's guidelines, uh, no surprise. Right. In California, every felony uh, has what we call the triad, uh, not almost every felony. There's okay. a few exceptions. Uh, the triad. So, for example, in um, a, a typical case, it might be two, three, or four years. Okay, so a felony, another little thing, a felony and a misdemeanor. What's the difference? The, in, the difference, <laughs> in short, is if you get convicted of a felony, you can go to prison. Uh, if you get convicted of a misdemeanor, you cannot go to prison. The most you could do is serve a year in jail. The local county jail. Ah. And people say, well, it's no different. Well, trust me, there's a difference. <laughs> okay. I don't want to be in either one. I've yeah. been in both. Yeah. And, I, and you don't want to spend a night in jail. Trust me. Right. Um, but there is a difference. And so a felony, it means it's uh, allowable to be sentenced to prison. Now, the vast, vast majority of convicted felons never get sent to prison. Uh, so what happens is you got the triad of, let's say it's two, three, or four years in prison. That's what the judge has available to them. The other thing they have is, unless I choose not to send them to prison, I will sentence them to a term of probation. Mm-hmm. And as a condition of that, I'm going to make them serve some period of time in jail. So what often happens we use a phrase, you're going to get a bullet. So it may be a, a felony. We're not going to send you to prison, but you're going to go on probation for three years. And as a condition of that probation, you're going to serve a year, a bullet in county jail. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is, you know, kind of a common dispens- uh, uh, you know, uh, resolution to a case. So within that two, three, four, if the judge says no, and they get input from probation officers who prepare sentencing reports, collect not only the, the facts of the crime that they mm-hmm. would need to know, but the background of the defendant, their criminal history, mm-hmm. um, whether they have drug issues or alcohol issues, their family background. There's, there are huge reports um, that need to be read and, and uh, you know, really absorbed by a judge in coming to an ultimate decision, what is the best resolution of this case? Um, and in that, they may choose to, you know what, I think he's suitable for probation. And I'm going to allow him to do probation, put some time in county jail, whatever. If they don't, they said, no, this is a prison case. You're going to prison. Then they have to pick one of the three possible sentences, two, three, four years. You know, again, every crime has their own little triad. Right. And what they base that on, the, the kind of um, expected result is the, is the middle term. So ah, okay. assume three years. Unless you see here's some mitigating circumstances, you know, Your Honor, that'd be fine. You know, the defense lawyer will argue, this is fine. I understand why you're sending him to prison, but you need to take into account he had a very troubled childhood and he was abused as a kid. Mm-hmm. That may cause a judge, okay, I'll give him the low term, the two-year term. Right. Or conversely, as the prosecutor often do, <laughs> you know, oh, my gosh, this guy's the ninth time he's committed a similar crime. He is, you know— uh, lied to the probation officer. He's totally not uh, remorseful. All these are factors in aggravation for a judge to consider to say, you know what, you're getting the upper term, yeah, the four-year term. So there is a discretionary call. Now, within that, uh, we have court rules that judges are required to consider that are things they're supposed to look at. And it includes the things I was talking about, the, the defendant's particular background, their criminal history, the nature of the crime, whether they're a 
represent a future threat to the society and so forth. These are all things that the judge is required to take into – should take into consideration in making their ultimate judgment, um, namely the, the term, whatever it may be. One of the things that happens uh, – has happened and I wrote this – I responded in a, a letter uh, – You know, the Union Tribune had a, interviews of us and – one of the things they asked about is a change you'd like to see or you think should be made in the just criminal justice system mm-hmm. in particular. And, um, you know, I, I went out and said, you know, there's a lot of things we can do to make it better. Anyone who's been in it for 29 years has presumably seen some things. But one of the things that bugs me most is the constant reduction, you know, removal of discretion from judges. Mm. And now that sounds like, oh, you want to be a judge and have all the discretion in the world. Yeah. Well, the answer is what, no, but what I want, what I think should happen is if you're going to elect me to put me in this position, then give me the authority to do what I believe is right. And and here comes the kicker to the state courts, and I can tell you a lot of people on the bench don't want to hear this. <laughs> uh, it is if I get it wrong enough, then run someone against me and beat me in the next election. Ah, yeah. You know, I mean, we answer to the people. Right. And so if I'm not doing a good job as a judge, then you can run against me or someone can run against me and and take me out in an election because I answer to the people. But what I don't – what I worry about is too many judges – are worried about well, what will happen if I do this. Mm. Will the mothers against drunk driving go ballistic and I need to worry about that because that may impact my ability to get reelected next time. I hope that never happens. I can tell you from personal experience, I've seen it happen, that people, that certain judges run from the, their, the, the tough decisions because they're afraid of how it might look politically. That's kind of the downside of being elected position. Yeah, You're exactly. worried about getting elected yeah. uh, the next go around. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things I said is, you know what, and I go back a ways to when three strikes was instituted in this uh, state. And that was a time where, you know, we got to get tougher on crime. And right. there were some great efforts there to, re, you know, to attack crime. And I was a DA at the time, so I got it. But, of course, like everything, when you paint with a fairly broad brush, you end up with those invariable unintended consequences. Right. And so we're looking at cases. He had three, you know, two qualifying felonies, serious violent felonies in his past, this particular individual, long time ago. But he had them. Yeah. And he stole a bottle of alcohol. Yeah. $28 out of a 7-Eleven. Right. Because it's a oh petty theft. Yeah, but he has a felony prior theft. I mean, it was an armed robbery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but a petty theft, when you have a qualifying prior, becomes what we call a petty theft with a prior is a felony. Ah. And so now he's looking at a felony charge. Oh, and he's got two qualifying strike priors. Right. This is his third strike. He's going to 25 to life mm. for stealing a bottle of alcohol. Now, some would say he deserves it. Okay, that's where I might beg to differ. Is that really what we want to do? Is that really what we want to do? Someone who's stealing a, a six pack of beer because they're on their prior felonies, they already served their time. Yes. they already paid their price to society. That's right. That's right. Um, and so, yeah, but it, it was that was like in the nineties when all that happened. That's the, exactly the right. Three strikes. That's right. And and, and we've throttled back a little bit. We've yeah. kind of reduced that, and now we're going down a path that is causing a lot of concern. Uh, remove bail consideration. I mean, up in San Francisco, the DA is 
newly elected. Um, mm-hmm. He uh, comes at it from a slightly different approach, and he's talking about crimes he won't even prosecute. And we, we are definitely swinging the pendulum the other way mm-hmm. of things we can't do. There's a, a piece that I just saw. I wouldn't necessarily endorse him 100 percent, but there's a judge who got on the bench in Massachusetts because Massachusetts passed this bail reform. That as he, you know, and he got up there and called the press in and and basically gave his spiel about what they've done is take away my discretion. So I cannot put this person in jail and put a bail on their head. I must release them. He goes, now I'll follow the law because I'm required to. Yeah. You know, but this is what you've done. I, I have zero discretion. I must release this person, even though they've continued to commit crimes. Mm-hmm. And they know I come in the courtroom, they have to release me. I go right back out. And no surprise, they keep committing crimes. The pendulums, and we're wrestling with that now in California. Bail Interesting. Reform. And so my answer is stop passing laws that presume to try to dictate all the time what should happen. And all it does is hamstring the very people who should be making these decisions on one case and in the other sense, causing these unintended consequences often. Maybe we just go, judge, here's the things you got to consider. You make the call. Now use your judgment. Yeah. And if you mess it up enough, <laughs> the people are coming. Right. And, and you know what? I'm fine. I personally am fine with that. Now, I'll be very honest. I, can't, I can afford to be that, that way. Why? Because I've been doing this a long time. If I were to win this election six years from now, if I have ticked off the wrong people because I made judgments that I felt were absolutely required by the law and and were the right thing to do, which is what I'll do, I'll live with that. I mean, so I go away. I mean, if someone is – if I've messed it up enough, then I will lose my next election in six years. That's that's as it should be. Um, I will tell you – and here's the the anecdote I use – the filing deadline comes up the way it works. Now we'll get a little more educated. Judges, every single judge runs for election. All of them. Right. Always. People say, no, that's not. Okay. And here's how it works. You, you're, you're, you serve a six-year term. At the end of your term coming up, so the judges whose terms will end December 31st, 2020, um, they needed to file their intent to run on November 6th of this past year. If they did not file on November 6th, then their seat goes up for election. Mm-hmm. And that happened in four cases, and including the judge whose seat I am seeking now. He's retired. He did not refile. Prior to that, November 6th, anybody who wants to could file against the sitting judge. I'm going to take him on. You can do it. It doesn't happen very often here in San Diego. It rarely happens. It happens a lot more in L.A. and other places. Um, I can tell you on November 6th at 5.01, if you were close enough to the courthouse— you could hear the collective sigh coming out of that courthouse. Why? Because 35 or so judges were terms are expiring. Four of them were going for election. They knew it. 31 of them were holding their breath that no one would run against them. Ah. Because at 501, if no one filed, mm-hmm. they were automatically reelected. I, so they won't even appear on the ballot. So right. there's 35, and I'm picking the number, it's ballpark, 35 or so yeah. judges. Um, 31 of them won't even be on the ballot. They're going to be automatically reelected. And in, invariably, that's, that's okay. But I can tell you that those judges, because I have good friends who are doing it, you know, who are sitting on the bench. And they're, I mean, they're like, does anybody file against me? I mean, if you're worried about that, 
then I wonder how worried are you every day when you're making decisions? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking about how, what will that mean for my election? You go, well, why should they worry? Because people don't know this. The retirement system in the, in the, in the judiciary is, I mean, I don't know, I know if I have this right, I, but you need to be 65. And if you leave the bench before then, you won't have your retirement. Oh, you know, so for those of us who have been doing it a long time, which is why I always like, you know, gray haired people being on the bench, <laughs> the answer is, OK, fine. I, I'll move on in, you know, in six years. I, I, I'm not worried about that. But if you're on the bench at 45 years old and 15 years down the road, you're now 60 and someone runs against you. They're going to go, what am I going to do? Well, go out and get a job is what you're yeah, going to do. Yeah. Because yeah. you're not going to just walk off into retirement. Um, but they are. And understandably, deathly afraid of being challenged. Now, the reality is most judges, even ones who've been challenged, win. But they have to do what I'm doing, run around the county and get elected again. Which um, has got to be uncomfortable for a judge. It, 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 yes. And, and then there's questions that you really can't answer or shouldn't answer. That's right. And then you get into audiences where they kind of already know they shouldn't ask certain questions. Like, That's right. Like I, for me, there's a ton of things I'd love to ask you, but I know I can't. Yes. Because yes. it would, it would yes. be, it would put you in a bad spot. Um, but yeah, it would be very uncomfortable. Yes. For an, a, a judge to run an election. That's why it's fascinating to me that it is an elected position. Yes. Every single judge is elected. Here's how when people say, well, I heard someone was appointed by the governor. What happens is if someone, if a judge, sitting judge, there's two ways. They, they get, if they create a new judgeship, the, the, the state, uh, the, you know, the state assembly, if they create a new judgeship, the governor can appoint to fill that position. Hmm. Okay. Okay. San Diego hasn't gotten a new judgeship in, I don't think, my entire career, um, short of the time when they merged yeah. the municipal and superior courts, and th- those judges just elevated. Um, and if you were to ask you know, the Judicial Council, they'd be, kidding me, San Diego? I mean, Riverside <laughs> needs judges. L.A. needs judges. Uh, San Diego's not getting any new judges anytime soon. So no new judges, but what does happen is a judge retires middle of their term. Ah. That seat goes up for appointment or is available ah. for appointment. It doesn't have to be, but the governor can then, and they have a whole process they go through. And, you know, side note, I actually was submitting my application to the governor for a potential appointment, uh, which can take the better part of a year or two, yeah. even if you get selected. And that's, there's some politics involved in that, but yeah. needless to say. Mm-hmm. Um and a very extensive vetting process. So I had completed the application and I had met with some people, including a Superior Court judge, uh, were talking to me about how they might help me. And that was when, this was October, uh, the, the judge said to me, hey, Pete, you know, there looks like there's going to be two, maybe three seats going for election. First time I ever heard it. Ah. And the reason is, is in, until November 6th, then those judges don't file a paper, then no one knows it unless... The, Hey, you know, just so you know, I'm going to be retiring. It becomes this thing in the courthouse, yeah. you know, about who's and, – and that part bothered me. It's like where where's the part of, okay, let's get that out in the open, make sure everyone knows, anyone who wants to run and not be this like, oh, it's a great secret. You get in there, put your name yeah. in your – there are you – know, you could be preparing your campaign – you know, all the way up until November 6th. Oh, my gosh, I didn't know a seat was coming for election. Someone else has been, oh, my God, I've been working on this for eight months. I mean, yeah. that, that shouldn't be how it is. I mean, we should be – Let's get it out there. Well, that's kind of how it is for everybody else that runs for office. Everybody else. If they're an incumbent and they decide to step down, it's big news. That's right. That's right. And so that's that's how, uh, you know, when, when I say every judge is ultimately elected, that is it. Now, when those appointments occur, 
they're appointed to fill the balance of whatever sure. office they filled. So it might be for two years or four years or whatever. So there, there are four courts in San Diego County, aren't there? Four main courts, yes. Like Vista, El Cajon. And yeah, four regional courts yeah. uh, or four kind of geographical location courts. Actually, five. Five. Vista, okay. East County, out in El Cajon, South Bay and Chula Vista, downtown, and juvenile. Juvenile's... Maybe I should you know, see everything I think about. It. And then a sixth is really the Kearney Mesa Traffic Court is ah, part yeah. of the Superior Court. So there's okay. six. There used to be a separate probate court building mm-hmm. and a separate family law building. They've all moved into their respect. Most of them are downtown. Probate, uh, you know, is is now in chambers downtown. Or and in juvenile court. is downtown, I'd imagine, right? No, juvenile is in the juvenile court building. It's in the Kearney Mesa area. Oh, yeah. interesting. It's a completely separate. It's attached to juvenile hall. Oh, wow. Yeah. I spent my first tour as a DA. I was a juvenile, dep- you know, juvenile uh, district attorney in the juvenile division. Oh, my. Yeah. So I prosecuted youngsters. Ooh. Yeah. Just what kind of, can you share like a story of a juvenile case that is if you're comfortable sharing? Yeah. You know, I got to, there are two things. One, yeah, well, cases that are resolved are fine. Now, juvenile cases are all uh, sealed. So oh. you can never, I could never discuss an individual in any way. I, okay. me, but I can talk hypothetically. Let me think of a case uh, that, boy, that was my first assignment as a DA. So we're going back a few years. Um, try to think of an interesting one. Um I didn't, know they, I didn't know they were sealed. Maybe I shouldn't ask the oh, question. Oh, yeah. No, there's nothing about <laughs> the facts. I'm just trying to think, you know, because a lot of these kind of, you know, I've handled so many cases. I'm trying to think of one where I can kind of articulate it really quickly. Probably uh, one that comes to mind. There were two kids. Uh, you know, they're high school kids. They might have been kicked out of the regular school or now in whatever. Um, you know, and they um, – it's not going to be very profound, but these were just – they're typical, and we would not think – I mean, they walked up and stuck a gun in the face of an elderly couple and um, pulled them out of the car and stole their car. And then on the way out, pistol whipped the old man, and he ended up expiring. Ooh. And so we're looking at a uh, – you know, uh, at least a homicide, not a mm-hmm. first-degree murder case. But now it's all within the juvenile system. And it's changed over time. But those cases can get moved out of the juvenile system into adult court. It depends on the crime. It depends on the age. So you have to be of a qualifying age. So it used to be 17. Now it's dropped to lower. And there's debate about that. I mean, yeah. are we allowing 14-year-olds or committing heinous, violent felonies? Why shouldn't they be tried in you know, in adult court, um, because in juvenile court, it's a much more expedited process. The trial is in front of a judge only. Judge makes all the decisions, including the judgment as to whether the the juvenile is guilty or not. We don't even call it guilty. It's a true finding because it's a huh. petition. Uh, so mm. it's a different criminal complaint altogether. Uh, the juvenile hall is manned by the probation department. That Interesting. Is, yeah. Those are not. Yeah, they're law enforcement, but it's probation oversees the juvenile court, the juvenile hall system. Uh, even the ones who are kept in juvenile hall. I mean, that's, you know, the, the, probably the biggest difference between juvenile and the adult court. There's some move here. Juvenile has always been about rehabilitation. Uh, rather a, than punishment. Adult court, you know, at least for a long period of time, we've always said the primary 
uh, basis of criminal justice in the adult court system is punishment. Mm. Um, and that was kind of the main distinction. There's now some – and I understand the discussion of is that what we should be about, punishment, as opposed to some of the other things we're talking about, rehabilitation, getting people – I would say that depends on the crime. You know, if someone is a five-time felon who keeps victimizing the community, they need to be removed from the community. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, if it's someone who made a mistake, um, shouldn't we find some way to help them get past that someday? You know, they may have to pay a lot of consequences, but at some point we want them back being a productive citizen. Well, juvenile looks at that from day one. We're trying to get this kid to be – a productive citizen. Right. Um, and rehabilitation is what it's all about. But we used to say the California Youth Authority, you know, which is the only the worst offenders get sent there. I mean, somewhat flippantly, we say it's, you know, it's it's basically the college for career felons. I mean, mm-hmm. it is a very rough uh, situation, the California Youth Authority. And who are they surrounded with? Similar gangsters and other people committing heinous crimes, young people. Um, So uh, now, don't mistake what I'm saying. Anyone who would hear the California Youth Authority uh, is a whole separate employee base, but their goal is, I mean, they have full classes, education, training programs. They're all about rehabilitation. But when you take a, a kid and put them amongst a whole bunch of other kids who have all committed these ridiculously heinous crimes. I mean, it doesn't take much to figure out, boy, this is not a recipe for helping them move past right, this. Right, right. They just go deeper. It, you would tend to think. Yeah. And, and uh, the California Youth Authority spends a lot of time, effort to to make that not happen. Um, so it's it's a difficult question because – you know, if it's a tough place, then don't send them there. But what else are we going to do? I mean, these are yeah. kids who've committed yeah. murders in some yeah, cases yeah. Um, like this. I mean, this elderly gentleman, I mean, had his car taken and pistol whipped. And, you know, it's uh, these are things you just I mean, boy, you'd sit there and see these young kids. I mean, 16 years old, 15 and go, boy, where's this coming from? You know, this this level of violence. Um it can be scary. The juvenile courts uh, can be a scary place. But if we're doing our job and doing it well, we turn most of those kids around. I mean, well, as a judge, would you like rotate amongst all of those different courts? Uh, so you might be in juvenile, you might be in East County, or, or are you assigned one of them as a primary? You you will be assigned. Uh, and it's really it's kind of interesting. We have a presiding judge of the entire San Diego County Superior Court. That person is elected uh, by their uh, colleagues, by the rest of the of the judges in the court, uh, to serve a two year term. And um, and that person ultimately, and their executive staff there, are responsible for assignments. And so, and this has kind of been a rub. So. Um, You'll be assigned where you're needed. It's as simple as that, <laughs> yeah. right? And so uh, what happens, you get a career prosecutor who comes out of, um, you know, been doing, you know, the DA's office or my office has been doing major felonies. And, you know, I want to go do criminal trials. Invariably, where they many of them get assigned their first time out, they've just either been appointed or elected judge. Their first assignment, family law court. Oh. Yeah. Why? Because – 
Uh, and I'll let the presiding judge, uh, you know, answer that really. But I think the reason is, look, if they've been like, especially a DA, you've been handling cases that are in the courts. Well, we want to get them removed from those cases uh, for a period of time. So they kind of, you know, we don't have conflicts of interest. Oh, that's a case that I touched my oh, hand. I cannot handle a case yeah, as yeah. a judge that I actually had my fingers on at any yeah, point. Right. So that's a way to keep them out of there. But... Part of the problem is family law is important. And I have many practitioners in family law who will, you know, they are making decisions about child custody, you know, dissolution of marriage and the distribution yeah. of assets. And you get someone coming in going, I don't do family law. I don't want to do this. <laughs> I mean, come on. I'm a criminal, you know, trial guy, big dog. You know, I want to be doing the murder cases. And if they have that attitude, and I'm not saying our, there are some that I know do, um, they want out. And that's not a – that I find unacceptable. If, if someone if, – if the people decide that I'm worthy to wear the robe, I'll go wherever you need me and I'll work my tail off to do as good as I can within that, that position. Too many people kind of almost see it as, you know, it was my right. I, I had a great career as a prosecutor. Now I'm a judge. I don't do family law. I don't do probate. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's what the court needs. It's back what we used to say in the Navy. You know, it's like, what you know, where are your assignments? Well, it depends on how you perform. It depends on, um, uh, you know, your performance, your desires, you know, what you want to do. Yeah. And the needs of the Navy. You know, and yeah. we, we joked. It's really the needs of the Navy. <laughs> the needs of the Navy. The needs. Oh, yeah. And then, by the way, we'll also look at your yeah. performance. Um so the Navy puts you where they need you. Eh, totally get it. The courts will have to do the same thing. And what I hope to represent even to the presiding judge is someone like me. You can put me in any court, any court. And, you know, I'll have a lot to learn. But I've been in juvenile. I've been in probate. I've litigated case in probate. I've done some family work. I've done a lot of civil litigation. Of course, I've done an immense amount of criminal uh, litigation. Um, so I hope I represent an asset of, look, here's a, here's a utility player. We can put him in any court we need. Um, now, judges will learn over time. But do you want to bring your case into a court in front of a guy who's only a person, male or female, who's only done criminal prosecution their whole life, and you've got a probate court case with your family's estate? Yeah. And that's your first case. Yeah. Yeah. We can say, well, they'll learn over time. Yeah. Well, guess what? Someone's going to be the first one going, mm, help me out here. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And I, they may not want to be there. And they, and they may not want to be there. And that's yeah. that's that's something I, I just will leave because if a judge ever felt that they don't want to be, then take off the robe and go home. Right. Um, I, I have no tolerance for that. I mean, and I, I know for a fact. Now, the interesting thing, they don't work for the presiding judge. The, you know, that's an administrative role. Right. right? They answer to the people. How many judges are there? I want to say around 130-ish. Wow. Yeah. Throughout the county. And and you said those are – we talked about six courts. Mm -hmm. But within those courts, you know, we have criminal courts, civil courts, you know, for civil litigation. We have probate. We have family law. We have a whole separate juvenile court doing juvenile law. Um we have, you know, then the small claims and so forth and mm -hmm. traffic court down there in Kearney Mesa. Um, so there's, you know, not just the geographic locations. There are, you know, professional or, you know, areas of law, you know, locations. Now, right. not every – it used to be that almost every regional or geographic location had all of that. That's not the case anymore for 
cost reasons. They yeah. have consolidated. Um, and so there are – and I never keep track of who's where anymore. I mean all of them have criminal courts but uh, and all have civil to a degree. But but they moved – you know, large portions of most of the family is downtown. All of the probate is downtown. So if you have a – if you're in Bonsall and have to probate a case, you're going to downtown San Diego. Wow. Yeah. You're not going to Vista. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, – you know, it's and that's when I talk about you know diversity on the bench requires diversity of the person. You know, certainly the things we usually talk about, you know, ethnicity, gender, uh, nationality, all of that's important, and, and because we want it to reflect the populace. But you also have to have diversity of professional background, right? And uh, because the courts are not all criminal courts, I mean, right. that's only a portion, and those but judges. That's, that's can, your unique calling card, though, right? I hope it's seen that way, John. Uh, yeah, I, I it hope is. So it is. It is. It, and I talk about it every time. It's. It, it is not to demean my opponents. They are. They have good qualifications. They don't have that level of diversity of background and, and level of experience. I have it. Just don't. So it's. Uh, you know, but it's. Uh, you know, it's. It, it's interesting. It's interesting. The uh, you know one thing you mentioned that I would go back to. You said like if a judge runs for election. Well, interestingly enough, the minute I made any public uh, announcement, even before I filed, but any public announcement that I was running for judge, I was completely covered by the canons of judicial ethics, the exact same ones that govern govern sitting judges. So I'm governed by them as I sit here right now. So what does that mean? That means that I must follow this little this rules. These are ethical rules for judges, and we all, as lawyers, we have them too. The model, the rules of professional conduct that talk about things you can do and can't do, and you know things like you know you never uh, commit a fraud against the court. You are an officer of the court as a lawyer, et cetera. Well, things that you know probably most you know in tune to some of the things we touched on is. As a judge, you cannot, you know, offer an opinion or or suggest how you might rule in any case that could conceivably come before you. That is, in essence, now I'm shorthanding it. In essence, the core of what we talked about. That's why we can't talk about policy decisions. Someone says, "Well, what's your position on abortion?" And I, you know, I don't even want to choose one side. But think about it. In a superior court, is it possible that someone could get? Um, arrested for trespassing at a Planned Parenthood clinic. That's a crime. Mm -hmm. Now they're in front of you. If you've expressed an opinion that you are either for, you know, pro-life or pro-choice, regardless of which side, you come into that courtroom and go, well, you can't give me a fair trial. You've made it clear that you stand on one side or the other. And... That is something a judge is absolutely prohibited from doing for good reason, because if I start to do that, all these cases that I'm now by definition going to be recused from, I'm losing my ability to serve my role, which is to sit as a judge. Now, at the end of the day, we all have – we're all people. We have opinions about every issue, I suspect. Um, And I told people this. They said, you know, it sounds like a cop-out. You know, and I've had this. It's like, oh, I don't have to give you my opinion on that. Uh, but the answer is, of course, I have opinions and points of view and biases and all of that. But what I'm, what the, what the, what they're asking me and every other judge and judicial candidate to do is the exact same thing we ask jurors to do every single time we swear them in. Ah, yeah, okay. Which is, you have biases. 
That's fine. We understand you have points of view. What we're asking you to do, set them aside. Acknowledge them, set them aside, and promise that you will do nothing but judge the facts based on what you hear in this courtroom. And then apply the law that the judge is going to tell you and you agree to follow the law. We tell every single juror that. That is part of the jury instructions. I've done over 100 trials, uh, jury trials, over 75. Every time that's in there, they're mandatory jury instructions. That's all we're asking the judge to do. Of course you have biases. Are you going to put them aside and rule on a case based on the facts that are unique to that case and the law that applies? Yeah, this is very Sounds simple, but that really explains. That's why we don't want judges talking about their opinions on yeah, things. Yeah, of course. That's why it's so uncomfortable for you to campaign and so odd that judges run for office, what I, I find. But yeah. it, it, you, you, we see this in the Supreme Court hearings and when they're in front of Congress, right? Yes. And they have to be very careful on what they how they answer the question. And, you know, the senators are up there and, and they're grandstanding and oh, politicizing. Yes. And, oh, yes. And, you know, they're up there touting themselves as a senator of course. Um, using the opportunity. That's right. But then the judicial candidate there I mean, they got to stay in their lane. They do have to stay in their lane. And, and the more they do that, the more they almost ping on them. You know, you're just evading. I cannot answer an issue that could conceivably come before me. And I don't know how many ways to say that. I, I, I can't publicly express that. To a degree, a judge or judicial candidate is given up certain First Amendment rights. Make no mistake yeah, about it. you're right. I cannot go out there and profess my opinion about any issue that could conceivably come before me. Um and that's as it should be. I, I do that willingly. It's it's not yeah. comfortable. It's not easy. I have opinions. <laughs> but, uh, just ask my wife. <laughs> um, but uh, but it is you know part of the acceptance of the role. I mean maybe you know after twenty nine years I get that yeah, it comes and with I, the territory. And I'm prepared yeah. for that. Yeah. I, I mean I it's I, I understand why and and it, it makes sense to me. So I'm good with it. Uh, I really am. And it's not just an evasive maneuver on our part not to get locked into one thing or another. But um, but yes, campaigning uh, for any role, I've never campaigned for an office before. Uh, this has uh, been an interesting uh, in uh, an interesting uh, process, let's put it I'll that bet. way. Yeah. yeah. But it's healthy, I think, to a great degree. You know, people get to meet judges. Yes. And they get to understand and you know, they can make an intelligent choice. It, it, yes. And, and that's why I really do see, and why, again, why this was great to come, is it begins and ends with trying to educate people. Just reach out, talk to me, talk to the other candidates, do your research, and make an educated decision. That's that's all any one of us could ever ask. Um and that's all I ask for sure. And, um, uh, you know, the reality of campaigning, uh, you would think, well, judges, you know, it's not very political. There's more politics behind it than I, I probably should even get into. Well, yeah, it's, but it, it's, it's it, politics it, exists everywhere. At it, some does, level. it does. It yeah. does. And I get that. I'm not naive. I knew it. But there were times when, you know, as a, a consultant I work with said, Pete, I, I don't deal in what should. I deal with what is. And ah. I say, I hear you. I yeah. just said, but that can't be right. You know, it's so disheartening, you know, to mm -hmm. hear certain things or so and so is doing this and the maneuvering. And you just go. I just worry about myself. You know, I, I worry about me, I, you know, put the best step forward and, and hope that you can reach enough people um, because I'm confident that at the end, the same reason I said, if, if people do their research, I, I'm pretty comfortable with the, what the result will be. Um, the problem is 
I could talk to a whole lot of people. That's not 400,000. I no. couldn't do that. If well, you I, know, this podcast has millions of listeners I, and viewers. I'm sure know? of it. <laughs> so you're going to be connecting with the people here. That's awesome. Now, I, was, I want to just take a crazy tangent. And this is um, – I'll go with you. Yeah. And you, you said that you, like, enjoy going to high schools and talking yeah. about constitutional law and that sort of thing. Sure. And this is one issue that I've never really understood is when you look at the Constitution and the Constitution has – um, very clearly described um, boundaries as far as the authority of the federal government. Mm-hmm. You know, it can do these things. And then, you know, you go through the Bill of Rights and, you know, there's First Amendment, freedom of speech. But then you get all the way to the 10th Amendment. And it, the way that I have often read the 10th Amendment is that the federal government has the authority of all the you know, power as defined in the Constitution. Yes. And anything outside of those boundaries is the jurisdiction of the states or the people. But it always seems to me that that Tenth Amendment is ignored, that the federal government has gone way beyond the scope in the Constitution. And then I've heard other people say that the Tenth Amendment has been rendered moot, that it no longer applies. And I never really have understood that. Well, I certainly don't understand that last point because okay. last I checked, the Tenth Amendment hasn't been repealed. So, yeah, exactly. Um, and we have a very difficult process to amend the Constitution, um, but it's there and it exists right there in the Constitution. So if they wanted to repeal it, they could uh, vote of the people and two thirds of the legislature and all this stuff. Um so, no, it's still alive and well. And now, constitutional scholars would say, uh, I, I do know this. I'm certainly not a constitutional scholar, not of the level of the people I talked about before. Uh, I mean, I've had – I'm a lawyer and I've had constitutional <laughs> law and I can talk to high school kids about it all day long because I just – I think it's fascinating. Um, but I do know this. There's very little what we call jurisprudence on the Tenth Amendment, meaning case law, uh, cases mm. that have been decided. The Tenth Amendment is – and I've seen different discussions about why is that? Why is it not brought forth more as a basis of an argument and, and therefore get you know case law, Supreme Court law uh, on the Tenth Amendment? There's just not very much. Um, I'm not sure I could answer the question as to why. Um, that's probably for people far brighter than I. But I will say this. Maybe give this example. And I do it in the in the high schools uh, when I talk to the kids because we talk about not just constitutional history and, you know, and the Constitution itself. We talk about the Bill of Rights. Right. OK. There is. The, yeah. You know, the first ten amendments. And um, – Including the 10th. Yes. And so I'll go through with the kids and we'll, you know, talk about the First Amendment and, you know, right of free speech and right of religion and the Fourth Amendment, you know, against unreasonable searches and seizures and the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms and, you know, on and on and on. Um, And I usually come back and say, what do you see that's consistent in all of those? You know, they, it's a trick question. Well, yeah. it's not really a trick question. I've never had anyone really get it because I know what the answer I'm looking for, yeah. right? Um, so I try to lead them down the path, and they're like, well, it's all things, you know, that tells us our, what our rights are. I said, uh-huh. okay. And then we usually have a discussion. I said, what is this part? Congress shall make no law yeah. abridging the right of free speech. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do you mean Congress shall make no law? And they're like, I said, what do you think that means? And I said, those rights are yours. They were there when this country was created. Mm -hmm. Our Constitution is saying those are your inalienable rights. That's right. 
all we're saying here is Congress can't do anything to take it away Mm -hmm. within whatever the confines may be. So the 10th Amendment, which I would say kind of emphasizes that point, is unless it's delineated within here what the federal government can do, then all those – the rest of those rights are reserved for the people. And the states, of course, that and the states go, oh, well, the states can do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but that's Mm -hmm. where, you know, it's a a bit of a convoluted amendment in my mind. uh, And it does cause, you know, a lot of query. But I think we need to just always remember these are not rights that were given to you by the U.S. government. They were not given to you Mm -hmm. by the president. They are yours as a citizen of these United States. And I tell these kids that. You have a right to free speech, and they can't take it away. Now, we put limits on it all the time right. for perhaps good reasons. It's how a society needs to operate, um, to have common rules we can all play by. But, um, but I, I, I always try to emphasize that. And, and I can tell you, invariably, these kids are just like, Wow. And I said, see how cool this is? I mean, these yeah. guys in 1787 were, were thinking through this. Yeah, we can argue, oh, that was a bunch of old white men doing it. I, okay, I get it. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. And yeah. you know what? They even allowed for at least the concept of, it's not in there specifically, but they allowed for the concept of slavery by definition, the two-thirds you know, compromise that allowed the Constitution to even be passed. Um, so there's a lot of faults to be had with it. But if there's anything, people talk about, oh, is it a living constitution or strict constructionist? I'm like, look, it's a document. And they've written the words in such a way that I think are brilliant, that gives us room as a society to take those and apply them to our lives every day. And that will, and I'll be careful here, it won't change (laughs) over time, Mm -hmm. you know, but we have to take it in the context of, where we're at, you know, all of those words. But I think the framers recognize that. Others have said that. That's not me making it up. I tend to believe that. I think they wanted to purposely create wording that would allow this document to apply to an evolving society, not an evolving document, an evolving society. Mm. And so I think they very purposely drafted that out to say, here's the limits of federal government action. Um, people don't we, – we, you know, this whole bit about reserve to the states, you know, people think that sounds kind of, OK, whatever that means. I mean, you have to understand in 1787, I mean, the states were the seat of power. This That's whole right. notion of a federal government overseeing it was, A, alien and, B, really uh, pushed back against by That's the right. representatives. They, we're not going to let Massachusetts tell us <laughs> in Virginia what to do. Yeah. Uh, and so they were very sensitive to that. Um, they were trying to find a way, I think, to allow this community of 12, 13 colonies, uh, <laughs> add one, don't leave out whoever. Um, I always say, who's the first to ratify it? Kids never get it. Little teeny Rhode Island. Really? Yes. Good oh, nice. Them. Way to go, guys. <laughs> First in freedom. That's where it comes from. Um, so they uh, – so I haven't answered your question because I don't really have a great answer for it except to say I think the concepts in the 10th are alive and well. We have chipped away with them. The federal government has become something I think would be quite unknown to the framers. It's the size of it. But then again, maybe it has to do with the size of the society. I mean um, – the federal government, uh, things like presidential power have grown to places that 
I don't think the framers, quite frankly, envisioned uh, in their time. But they did create a document that was meant to be, if not malleable, to be worked with under kind of a, you know, kind of a, a, a framework right. of, of life um, and to let it go forward. But knowing that life is changing, but if we hold on to this framework, then maybe this will keep us, you know, kind of intact a bit along the way. Mm. And lo and behold, we're the longest surviving democratic republic in the, in the world. It's not by accident, I don't think. We have a lot of problems. I'll be the first to admit it. You know, but we, as we used to say, it's the worst system in the world except for all the others. And right. I, I tell you, know, look, I'm an ex-military guy. I am an avowed patriot. I believe in the country. I believe in the Constitution. I believe in the rule of law. Uh, there's a lot of things we need to do, but I'm not about to throw it all out and say, oh, my God, we need to start all over. Uh, I've watched you know, – I've travel with the military. I've been in places where they don't have what we have and I see the kind of lives they have. They're, they're, there's a reason people are coming through the borders. This is a great country. That's right. It's a great country. And mm-hmm. you're right uh, to – we need to be ever vigilant about this evolving growth of power in the wrong hands. Mm-hmm. Um, if not even in the wrong hands, it sounds like a bad person. I'm saying taken out of the hands of the people who hold the power. It's exactly the same thing I say to these kids in high school. What is the first three words? We, the people. It's our power. And if we give it up, we don't vote, we don't pay attention to these rights, we don't care when someone else's rights are taken away or abused, Mm -hmm. then shame on us. That's right. It's our country. It's our courts. It's what I say to people. It's not a judge's court. I don't own a courtroom. If I'm ever in a courtroom with a robe on, it's not my court. It's the people's court. They own it, not me. And and I think we, if we just remember things like that, we'd realize that, you know, you're no better than, you know, the person of brown color or, or a different religion or whatever it is. We're just people who happen to share this common framework mm-hmm. of a country called, and that started with the Constitution. This is why, I, I mean, I, I know I sound like a cheerleader for it, but no, it, to no, me but- it's an Im- incredible – document that is has shown the test of time a bit and has shown the need at times to be amended. Yeah, it has. Yes. Um, And we've done really well with that. And if we need to amend it again, then we should. But we shouldn't disregard it. And um, so I think that notion still there that the rights not specifically given to the federal government. There's, you know, beyond that, probably could go on forever about where has the (laughs) federal government overstepped its bounds and Mm -hmm. whether that's really constitutional or not. I mean, my gosh, you're looking at uh, Supreme Court dockets over decades and decades um, dealing with those very kinds of issues. But, um, you know, it's it's an interesting system. As as I say to people, um, what do you think happens if – Steve Voss, the mayor of Poway, yeah. you know, and his city council members pass a law in Poway that most people think is fine. It just happens to be against the Constitution. We're good with it, though, right? <laughs> Not going to make it. No, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go a little bit above it. How about yeah. Governor Newsom here yeah. in California? Yeah. The answer is it's not going to fly. That's right. I mean, if it does not pass constitutional mustard, it will not survive or should not survive. Right. And you know what? Even us little Superior Court judges, those of us who— you know, yearn to be one. Um, 
are governed by that every day. I mean, so no matter what criminal, you know, statutes are in place, civil statutes, the governor's directives, ultimately, even federal law answers to the Constitution. And every judge needs to be prepared to go, you know what? I think this violates, you know, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment, whatever it be. Fourth Amendment being class and unreasonable yeah, searches yeah, and yeah. seizures all the time. We talk about things, you know, we wrestled with this. I'm in a criminal investigation unit. You know, what does it take for us to get access to cell phones? Do we need a warrant? Mm-hmm. Someone gets arrested. Can, you know, what used to be you get arrested, you, you know, take whatever belongings are on for inventory and then they're free for search. Not anymore. Court mm-hmm. case came down and says, no, you are going to have to go back to court to get a warrant to justify actually searching that phone. You can seize it, but it's going to just be retained. Um, you know, how about the ability to track people? We do it all the time, you know, through either cell phone data or, uh, you know, Internet IP use. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a big tool of criminal investigations, law enforcement investigations, tracking people. And we would think that's really good. Because we got drug dealers, you know, bad dudes who are out there and we need to be able to track them. We want to use that. Do we want to use that? But where does the line get drawn? Right. Well, we said, well, we can use it against him, but not, you know, John Riley going back and forth to work. And the answer is, well, who says? <laughs> yeah. If you yeah. allow it in one, you've removed that barrier. Mm-hmm. Or you say, you know what? It applies to whomever. Um, equality under the law, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's um, – you know, that's the fun stuff about the law. I mean, it it is alive. There's no, you know, you can have this discussion about the living constitution. The answer is the, the law is alive. It's it yeah. is a framework for the interactions of people. That's what makes these conversations so interesting. Yes, yes, because it is so alive. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. And and I try to. It is not a rote thing. Just memorize the law. Uh, you have to understand, and that's why I liked the school I went to. I mean, we didn't train. You know, we didn't go to school. Uh, to you kind of get prepared to take the bar exam. I mean, the bar exam is kind of a rote thing, and yeah. uh, you got to spit some stuff back. And 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 places like Duke and Harvard and Yale and so forth. I mean, they don't teach the bar exam. They teach you the law, how to learn the law, and how to advocate the law, and how to challenge the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and by doing that. The answer is you can go prepare for the bar on your own, you know, the specific things you mm-hmm. may need to memorize. We want you to understand how, you know, the law is created, what constitutes an argument. You know, it isn't just your opinion. It's got to be based <laughs> on facts, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and, and to, to, to marshal that to provide a persuasive argument. Uh, that's what, what really good lawyering is like. And it's why I, when I've talked to lawyer groups about being a judge, I said, make no mistake, I want you to lawyer in my courtroom. I'm not going to be a graduate-level prosecutor trying to tell you how to try your case. Right. You try your own case. You know, I'm there to make sure the rules are followed, you know, make sure the evidence code is followed. Um, uh, but I'm not going to second-guess you on your strategies in a case. I may be sitting there thinking, I don't know why you're going down that path. This is not going to work for you. That's not my role anymore. It is, in fact, a very hard thing, I think, and I've read quite a bit on this. There's a a judge, a retired judge now who teaches up at Berkeley, and he he researches and writes on these issues about being a neutral and what it really means to be a neutral and how difficult it is to go from a life of being an advocate yes, yes, to stepping away and saying, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm just trying to make sure the rules are followed. And then when everything's in, if I have to make decisions, to make decisions based on what? The facts you heard 
and the law that applies and not to advocate one way or the other. And that's a lot more difficult to do than I think it sounds well, at times. I'm sure it would be because there'll be cases where inside you, you have an opinion yes. and it may be a little bit askew from what the law is, yes. but you've got to say, I got to stick with the law. That's right. And, and so sometimes that's easy yes. and sometimes it's difficult. Exactly. And that's why I come back to that. What I'd like to see is not keep swinging the pendulum back and forth. One minute we're, you know, coming up with, uh, you know, incredibly difficult sentencing structures that are very hard on crime. Very good. You know, this uh -huh. will reduce crime. But then we end up with a lot of people that are caught up in that that maybe shouldn't. Or it's swinging back the other way, and and now we're we're subjecting the community, the society, to you know unchecked behavior. People are not being held accountable. There, I mean, there are circumstances. This is going on, and if it doesn't see a problem, and I'm very comfortable with saying it, where we, they, they're smashing and goes now because it's happening up in San Francisco and others where people walk into you know a you know like a clothing store and just grab stuff and walk out. Because they know now, depending on where they are, like in Massachusetts, classic example, and uh, I think you know New Jersey a little less so, but they passed bail reform. These people know if I get picked up, they have to release me right away. And people say, "Why? Wow, you really think the criminals are that smart? Trust me, they're not that smart. They're smart enough to know that. Right. I got great. So I get picked up. I'll, I'll be released and right away, and I'll go right back and do it again. In the meantime, you got a business owner who's got his inventory being walked out the door. Yeah, or God forbid, someone being assaulted in the store. I mean, so we we can't let the pendulum go all that way, you know, all the other way. So why don't we come back and go? I'm going to put it on your shoulders, Judge, Madam Judge. You make the call, and if you mess it up enough, there are going to be people waiting in to go. You know what? It's time for you to go because you don't have it right, and that is part of the job. And and I that's where I'd like to see us move in the in the justice system. Is let's keep the discretionary calls with the very people who are going to make those calls and they still have to answer for them to the people eventually. So, um, when's so we'll the, see. when's the vote? March 3rd is the primary. Okay. Uh, the way it works, we still have, depending on the race, we still have a top two. So the top two, uh, in my race are four, uh, candidates. So the top two vote getters, regardless of how, small or big the, the separation may be whoever the top two will advance the uh, november election okay the uh, the others will not uh unless someone gets 50 percent plus one okay if so you are elected now as people tell me with four people running not gonna happen yeah not gonna just happen, not, yeah. just the numbers <laughs> just not gonna happen there's another uh, seat that's being contested as three eh, maybe yeah Two of the other seats only have two people. Oh, okay. There you go. There will be a winner in those seats in March. So the seat that you're taking over, the judge there is retiring at the end of September. December. Oh, December. Right. So, oh, I misheard that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, December 31st would be their last day in office. So I, if, if I was so fortunate as to make it in the top two in March, I'll continue campaigning until November. And the November election, if I was doubly fortunate to win the seat... Uh, I would take office January 1st of 2021. Wow. Yeah. So cool. Heady stuff. Yeah. yeah heady stuff. And, I mean, I, I, there are times where I look and go, wow, are you, you know, really ready to presume to be a judge? You know, I mean, even that phrase catches me, but then I look and go, yeah, 
I mean, it's it's a kind of a daunting notion, but uh, and so I didn't take it on lightly. I can assure you. But um, and there are times when my wife says, "Wow, really?" Because yeah. it, it, it's tiring. I mean, I'm running around uh, all over the county. You touched on it, and it is fun. There's a lot of really fun stuff. I mean, just talking to people, yeah, as you can tell. Yeah, I yeah. like to talk to yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's fun to talk about the stuff that you can, and this is why this is really special. And, I, I, again, thank, the, the service you do for our community up here is awesome. I hope it goes throughout San Diego County, quite frankly. I don't know how broad your reach is, but uh, because it allows us to have a real discussion I mean, I just came from a group, you know, uh, I've been to the San Diego County Imperial, San Diego Imperial County's Labor Council, which is the overriding AFL-CIO. I've been in front of them. I just came from the uh, Navajo Canyon Republican Women's Club um, and spoke with them. I'll be Uh up in other, you know, both Democratic. I was at the uh, Coronado Democratic Women's Club on Saturday. Um, And it's – but oftentimes – it's like, okay, you know, please tell us about yourself in front of this group. Eight minutes. Yeah. And What do you say in eight minutes? You, you try to take whatever I said there and swoosh. <laughs> and I go, thank you for coming and, and bye. Um, if you're fortunate enough afterwards, it, maybe there's an opportunity to chat with people and have people come up and go, let me ask you something, which I love. Yeah. Um, because it is enjoyable. There's other parts of it. You're running around, oh, trying to get endorsements and who's supporting whom and this and that. And you know, you get down into that political baseness stuff that is not my favorite. No, I'll but just say I, that. I think this is terrific because, you know, I've said um, to, to you and I've said to other people, this podcast, I try to make it like a community forum. Yeah. You know, that we can have these long form conversations because when you get in front of an audience, you have eight minutes. If you happen to be quoted in a newspaper, you get a sentence. Yes. You know, for candidates that are running for city council or mayor, they, they're they in a debate forum and maybe they get, you know, a 60-second bit. Right. Um, I've always invited candidates on this podcast because I want you to freely tell your story, share your opinion, because then we can read you. Then we can understand, you know, not just the bullet points on your campaign literature. Right. We get to understand the character of the individual. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of this conversation. And I, I just enjoy talking about it. And it's fun. It's interesting. It, I learn. It is fun. It is. This, um, is, this has been a blast. It's um, what I worry about. And I am a, an opponent of this. This one I will say. And I call it the, you know, the uh, um, what is the phrase we use, um, uh, you know, classification politics, um, where, where we try to put everyone into a box. Oh, you're a Republican, therefore you're this. Yeah. Vice, oh, you're a Democrat, therefore you're this. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, and when you get into these short form things, they may pick up on something, go, oh, that's who you are. And, and then they've decided so much about you that may or may not be accurate. Right. And right. So I have people saying, oh, you're endorsed by Scott Peters, you know, the congressman. And I said, yes, I am. But I'm also endorsed by Jan Goldsmith, who, and, and, uh, Steve Voss and other Republicans. So, I, I mean, I purposely made an effort to do that because I think as a judge, quite frankly, I think you should be required to be nonpartisan as a judge, even officially politically. Yeah, your registration to vote. Yeah, yeah because it is by definition a nonpartisan office. Exactly. And so I make no bones about going out and seeking the support of people across the aisle, so to speak. As you should. And, uh, and I'm very 
pleased to have that support. And, you know, but what I don't like is people, oh, Scott, I said, look, <laughs> and, and I said this, I, I think I could say to a certain group who, you know, might lean. They, I said, you know, I'll be, they said, well, how do you, Scott Peter said, we've known each other a very long time. And I do think very highly of him as a person. I said, we disagree on more than a few policies. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, well, which policies? I yeah. said, well, see, that's not the point. The point is we can disagree on policies, but I still respect him as an individual and what he's trying to do. Yeah. And I can disagree and say, well, yes. well, let's find where we have common ground. And where we might come to a problem, maybe he has a point, and I'm just using that as an example, and uh, and Jan Goldsmith uh, you know, might have a different perspective. But is there a way we can address that problem that inter- intersects a bit? And, boy, I thought that's what politics was supposed to be. And we really have gotten away from that. Um, you're either A or you're B. Yes. Never the twain shall meet. Right. And no wonder that we're coming to an absolute standstill. So uh, that pains me. And I so I I love the opportunity to be able to explain that more. Uh, I mean, um, I can appreciate a certain person of any particular area. That doesn't mean I agree with everything they say, um, but we can still talk and still have an intelligent conversation that God forbid might lead to resolution of problems. And, you know, I just, uh, I see too much of what the phrase I was trying to find identity politics. There you go. And, and, yeah. and it's, I think it's really a cancer. I do. It I, is. I think it's ripping us apart. It is. When we start to define people by who they are, what they look like or what the, then you're not talking to people. You're right. And, um, so that's, you know, that that's perhaps my, you know, little side thing of going, you know what, I'm okay with going out there. I'll take my best shot, uh, but I'm not going to be something I'm not. Uh, I'm going to mm. be the person I've always been and talk about these ideas. And uh, if nothing else, at least I've had those discussions. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the way I left it with, you know, Anne's like, you know, but I want you to win. I said, oh, I want to win too. I wouldn't do it if I didn't want to win. But uh, but I'm not going to do it on anything but my own terms. Um, you know, I'm not going to become something to say, oh, this is what you need to do. No, yeah. I need to be me. And hopefully that's good enough. Well, I think the authenticity shines through, like when we have these long yeah, conversations. That's the beauty of this, I think. Yeah, because yeah. we understand you're very sincere and, you know, we can pick up on the nuances of the way you're delivering your message. <laughs> and we understand what, what you truly are all about. I hope so. I hope that I hope that's come across because that's all I wanted to do today is have these kinds of discussions. So it's awesome. This is awesome. Wow. So what's uh, next on the campaign trail? What do you got? What do you got um, scheduled next? Probably the next big thing, and it's really important to me. I hope it's important to the rest. Um, next week, I am interviewed by the county bar. Oh, and so the San Diego County Bar Association, which. Interestingly, uh, not every lawyer is a member of. They don't have to be. It's a volunteer membership. It's highly encouraged. You have to be a member of the California State Bar to be Mm. a practicing lawyer. But the local kind of county bar association is not. Now, it's an incredibly valuable organization because it has outreach. It has all the specialty areas of law. They have training and so forth. But one of the things they picked up on a few years ago is that, you know, we – 
in the bar uh, are, are presumably know a little something about this stuff called judicial elections and we should engage much more aggressively and they have and so they have sent out a questionnaire that I've completed now they send out questionnaires to people throughout the bar asking them and they're anonymous fill them out send them in say whatever you want um, and they're all done whatever they do in there I don't know and they have a committee of people who are reviewing those and then they're interviewing the candidates and so I have I'm being interviewed by a group of four next Tuesday I think it is is that right Tuesday or Thursday um, in an effort to really just explain the same things I'm talking about today uh, what the bar is looking to do is to assess judicial candidates and make an evaluation and the evaluation is not like this is the person we support it is to rate them, either qual- unqualified, you're unqualified, nice mm-hmm. person, great person, you're just not qualified, or qualified, or well qualified, or extremely well qualified. Ah. So they got their little hierarchy of four. Yeah. Um, they have tried hard to then publish those results. Um, I hope they get out there because now you have people who care very deeply about the justice system, spending a lot of time and effort to assess these people. It's not personal. Um, And to give you an evaluation as a voter that hopefully you can follow. Um, I can tell you that there is a judge who now lost his election, uh, you know, the only recent uh, sitting judge. He was rated unqualified. Whoa. Yes. Wow. By the county bar and won. And one. Yes. Gee whiz. Yeah. So, you know, those of us that pay attention to that just kind of go, good Lord. I mean, and and I know the county bar is working very hard to kind of, you know, elevate at least the the publicity of that to, to let it be known. Um, you know, and so they say, you know, be prepared because we'll let you know. You may if there are negative comments, and, and these are anonymous. So, you know, that, it almost scares me. Like, okay, well, if someone goes in, you know, Pete, you know, the proverbial. Well, let's be careful here, but uh, you know, when did you stop beating your wife? Right? I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, all you have to do is, you know, someone yeah. says that it's anonymous. Yeah. I'm like, wow. Now they're supposed to. I think they're required to put their emails. So you know, yeah. I will never know who it is, but the, the evaluating committee will know. Um, so presumably, you know, you'll get like, oh, uh, you know, he's, you know, whatever. I, I don't like the way he drives his car. I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, so I'm kind of waiting for, wow, what might they get out there? Um, you know, as they have asked me in different forums, you know, whether it's writing it down, because I've submitted stuff to the Union Tribune, which was oh, what yeah. that uh, little interview segment was, to uh, the county bar, to various organizations, yes. uh, both Democratic, Republican, and so forth, and, and nonpartisan groups. And they all have, a, you know, questionnaires. God, yeah. it's endless. Yeah. Um, but there's like, so how would you describe your demeanor? I'm like... I don't know. Go talk to the people who've known me for yeah. 29 years. Is, is and, and I literally have said that. I said, you know what? I'll just defer to whatever you get from the community. I, I used I to mean, say, go to YouTube, look at the John Riley Project. <laughs> well, now <laughs> I can. Yeah. Now I can. And, and that'll be awesome. But, you know, as I said, I, I'm not an unknown quantity, uh, yeah. at least in the legal profession. I've been around 29 years. Um, I'm sure. It, it, they once asked me, so is there anybody who might have something negative to say about you? I'm like, I've been doing this 29 years, practicing law as yeah. an advocate. I suspect I made somebody angry somewhere, somehow. <laughs> um, 
And of course, I like, I don't mean that. Of course, that yeah. you know, I mean somebody who said, "Oh no, he's uh, you know an underlying fascist who's trying to undermine the United States Constitution." <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, I'm not worried about that, right? Um, but you know, these you know presumably anonymous, you know, that's that could be a, a bit of a loaded gun. Like, geez, you know, someone all they have to do is say something. And and then they're not going to tell you, I assume. Let's say they say, you know, he was really grumpy in the courtroom once. I'm like, okay, over 20 – when? Well, we can't tell you that, where that, what that was from. Okay, oh. who says it? I, yeah. I don't know. And oh. you just go – It's like shadow boxing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I, I suspect that they will be – astute enough to go, look, unless we see a trend, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, of course. It, they're outliers and we throw those away. As they should. I mean, if you're a guy, guy, oh, he's okay, he's pretty good, and then you get one who's like, oh my god, this is should be a Supreme Court justice. Okay, you know, that's probably a little off the wall. It might be his mom, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or something. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, so I, uh, but that to me, let's put it this way, it matters a lot to me. Uh, and yeah. I hope it gets yeah. um, a lot of, uh, you know, publication out there. Uh, I hope they rate me at a level that, uh, you know, I had a, a certain judge who's a very senior judge on the on the bench uh, say to ask me, are, are you going to the county bar to be? And I said, well, they haven't started the process. It was a little while ago. And she goes, well, I'm sure you'll get the highest rating. And I said, well, thank you, judge. I, I hope so. <laughs> uh, but I'll let them decide that. Right. Um, but I hope, uh, you know, again, uh, my, what's on paper and who, uh, it speaks for itself. I mean, I again, I, I'm not going to go in there and have them say, well, we thought he was X. Oh, no, now we're going to change. I mean, it's, it's pretty much all there. And, uh, you know, I think what they want to do is um, – just have that sit down. I don't yeah. think there will be any great revelations. You know, maybe go, well, someone said you, you know, wear your tie <laughs> inappropriately and see if you go, damn it, who is that? I want to, you know, and then you go, well, eh, maybe that's not the judicial demeanor we're looking for. So, I mean, you got to be able to take some punches as a judge. I mean, there's some lawyers who can get awful snippy in a courtroom and your answer is not to start being snippy back. That's right. I mean, you got to. Calm down. It's just like a like a, a referee or an umpire on the sports field. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I use that analogy. I think about it a lot. Is judges are very much you know you and I have that background in baseball as a mm-hmm. baseball umpire. I, you're calling the ball. I think it's a little different. You got a little more guidelines yeah. here, um, uh, but you're calling balls and strikes. I yeah. mean, you're letting them know when an unfair play has been made, and and you're going to call them on it. What you don't get to do is decide the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, a judge, in many cases, does in fact decide the outcome. You know, if they're, mm-hmm. you know, really in every case, because even if a jury returns a verdict, here's a little side note: most people don't know, uh-huh. jury returns a verdict. Uh, it's not final until the judge enters judgment in consistent with that verdict. Can a judge overrule a jury? Absolutely. And it's happened many times. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. A judge can say, we, we have, uh, in the criminal courts, there, there are two different areas, or two different, really just procedural things, but they're, but they're similar. In the criminal courts, penal code section 1118, um, <laughs> 1118 motion at the, at the completion of the people's case. So, Prosecution presents their case, and the defense brings a motion to the judge. We're moving under Penal Code Section 1118 to dismiss the case. There is insufficient evidence that's been presented, and they've rested. They're done. Yeah. There's not enough evidence for this jury to, as a matter of law, for this jury to find a guilty verdict. Uh-huh. If the judge agrees, 
I agree. Case dismissed. Jury will never even deliberate. Interesting. Yes. But no. here's what most judges do. Um, well, I think there's some weakness, but no, go ahead and put on your case defense. Uh, let's see what you got. Defense puts on their case, um, whatever. Maybe it's no case at all because a criminal defendant doesn't have to do anything. Um, but so they put on whatever and renew the motion in light of it now everything you've heard. And I will tell you that for judges, it's really difficult. If Even if they think it's a weak case, they, what do they want to do? I want the jury to make the decision. Hmm. And because sometimes – and, and I, I guess I don't fault them too much because – especially because then what they really have to do is hard. Let's say they go, there's no way a jury's going to convict on this. No way. So I'll just – rather than me ending it now, go to the jury, get your not guilty verdict. And we're done. Mm-hmm. Jury comes back and guilty. Oh. Judge can go, you know what? I can't let that verdict stand. Mm. As a matter of law, I'm finding there is insufficient evidence to support the crime. And notwithstanding the verdict, I am dismissing the case. So that's that gotta can take, happen. That Ooh. takes a very brave judge. That will take a very brave judge. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it has happened. Um some of usually where I've seen it happen, I mean, just anecdotally, they've been very senior judges who are very comfortable and, and confident in their role mm. um, because it's a obviously very significant kind of decision to make. Yeah. And the same thing exists in the civil side. You can have a judgment. You know, you're asking for judgment, notwithstanding the verdict. Jury came back and found for the plaintiff, you know, we want judgment entered for the defendant based on the law, you know. The facts that the court heard, because sometimes the court can, you know, say as a matter of law, these facts do not support that verdict, notwithstanding what the jury said. So a judge has that discretion at the end, that discretion, that judgment call. And until that judge enters judgment, that ca- that verdict is not final. Man, we're, we're lear- I'm learning so much. Uh, well, good. I hope the audience is learning a lot. <laughs> this I, is great. I, I hope after 29 years, yeah. I have a little something. Yeah, to, you do. You got to, more to add. I got one final question. All right. It's the most important question. Okay. So you're a, a dookie. I am a dookie. So what do you think of these San Diego State Aztecs? I am impressed. Yes. And a little worried, to oh. tell you the truth. Okay. Because my old friend uh, from way back when, now Shashevsky, that yeah. everybody can pronounce, yeah. uh, can still pull magic. But that Aztec team is tough. They are polished. They are good. Yes. And uh, my Dukies are young. We're a little older this year than last year. We got mm-hmm. a couple of sophomores. and you know, We had about three one-and-dones last year, didn't we? Did. Four. Four. But who's counting? Yeah, we lost our whole team. The one, we would have had five, but Trey uh, Jones stayed. So thank God we've got a, a upperclassman sophomore hmm. uh, and a couple of juniors, uh, you know, but uh, – Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm 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 really worried about a final four with San Diego State and Duke. Uh, well, they played each other in March Madness a couple of years yes, back, they did. and it it was a pretty lopsided game. Yeah. Um. But yeah, the Aztecs are playing tonight. They're up in Fresno. Are they really? Yeah. I, I'm not following this. Uh, okay. Now I full disclaimer. Anybody on my Duke because I keep in touch with a lot yeah. of them, including some who were on that team. Kenny Denard, who's a friend of mine from way back, he was on that '78 team. That oh, went nice. To the, yeah. You know, graduated in '81. He did. Um. So he he was he was a Final Four participant starter on that team. I mean, he was the first, I 
think he says the first college player ever. He's certainly the first Duke player to reverse dunk. Oh, really? Yes, yes. Okay. And, and he has the you know the clip on some video thing. Well, for a long time, dunking was not allowed. That's in, right in, in college ball. That's right. Like Kareem had to always absolutely. do a layup. Absolutely. So this, I mean, the dunk was allowed by then, and he was. Uh, he says, I won't question him. But anyway, so in <laughs> case he's watching, um, I have to admit, I have not seen one minute of live Duke basketball since. Well, this season. Okay. Because I'm campaigning and out and well, doing yeah. stuff. And that's painful. I uh, yeah. always sit down yeah, with, yeah. Uh, and watch my dookies. So uh, so I'm not as uh, knowledgeable about them as I have been in prior years. Well, they only have one loss, I think. It's that's at right. Stephen F. Austin. Yeah, Stephen F. Austin. That was something. Who would have thought them? Proof positive. you got to play the game. Yeah, you do. And, uh, and somehow I think, and we'll now here's some insight for folks. I've been at Cameron. During a practice, you know, poked my head in. I don't even, don't even remember why I was over there because uh, they don't so, – I mean, they will often have closed practices. I think I got – I, I was doing so, – when I was in law school. And rest assured, Mike Krzyzewski, when he gets angry, you know it. Well, uh, we never see that side of you him. You never see it because he's very reserved. He's always the gentleman. Uh he got good army upbringing, not quite navy, but we're okay with that. <laughs> okay. um, but he is. Uh, but when he gets upset with his players, uh, they know it, and they will tell you. Ooh, when he, you know, yeah. I mean, they will walk with their, you know, these superstar, five star players. I mean, they'll come out of there with their tail between their legs. And I have watched him dress guys down. Went, whoa, that's a side of Coach K we don't normally yeah. see. So somehow I suspect. And, and I tell anecdotally is why I think it happened. After Stephen F. Austin, they haven't lost. But if there's a reason they haven't lost is their defense has been unbelievable. Uh, they are playing, and it's just what I'm reading because yes. I said I haven't watched. <laughs> um, and Krzyzewski is, you know, uh, all about defense. Yeah. Uh, he says the, the game starts with defense. As you create team. offense off of defense. Uh-huh. And I don't think he was very happy with their defensive effort against Stephen F. Austin. So I suspect there was some tough practices in there. Good. And lo and behold, they're responding so far. So we'll see. But I, you know what? I am not a fan of the one and done. I'll go on record right here. Yeah. Uh, I've heard Krzyzewski talk about it. He was originally not a fan of it. And then he had this one piece, very insightful, talked about why he has bought into it. It's in part because, look, life changes. Life evolves. You have to go with it, which is why he talks about it, which is why he's just, uh, oh, my God, a, a, a gold standard of leadership. Um, he talks about working with these kids each year. It's a brand new team. Even if only three of them graduate, three more come in, it's a brand new team and we start from scratch. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you have to lead based on what you have and change your leadership style. Not style, but but your your specifics every year and every team. And boy, how he keeps doing it 40 plus years down the road, I I, I don't know. He's certainly had success doing it. And uh, but there's you know, there's some real lessons, I think, are are really incredibly interesting. If if you watched any of his uh, he's had some leadership um, programs. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wise. And he talks about those. And uh, 
you know, and so he had one on this one and done bit, and he talked about how look, I mean, that's where the game's going, and I had we had we decided we're gonna get on board. I mean, we're not gonna stay out there like the old anachronistic group, and no. <laughs> um, okay, the times have changed. Whether we think it's good or bad is really not relevant. It just has, and so we adapted, and we want to be the best at it. Even with that said, and I love the way he presented that. Here's what I've seen too much of. Duke teams last year, perfect example. Incredible. Incredible. Watching them through the season. And then they get into March Madness and they're doing fine and fine. And then one game hits them and a couple things don't go. And no surprise, freshmen don't come through. Right. You're right. And lo and behold, I see time and time again. Look at that. They they just came through and you didn't expect. And, yeah, they're led by seniors or two seniors and juniors. And mm-hmm. so having leadership and experience, there we go. Yeah, bring it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Full circle is huge on the basketball court. And, and that worries me about Duke. That's why I'm a little more encouraged this year. I'm fine with Stephen F. Austin because if that what it took, a little slap upside the head, uh, <laughs> and there will probably be another or two down the path. But they've got some a few more – Senior guys, Jack White, I think, is a senior, at least a junior, the Australian. Yeah. Um, and so with enough of that, it can carry him, carry him through. But uh, so, so I'm still optimistic. Last year, I thought, okay, they're so good, no one can beat them until they got beat. Yeah. And, when, when did they lose? How deep did they get? Uh, they lost in the – was it the Sweet 16 or Elite 8? They did not make it to the Final Four. Right. Um, and, you know, they just – we're relying on, you know, our freak of nature player. Uh, Zion Williams. Zion. And, uh, you know, and he only did really good, not astronomical. And others fell short. And you can't, you can't win. It, 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 in, not in the March Madness run. And that's what I think San Diego State's got. They've got a nice mix of players. They've got a nice mix of experience. They've got a lot of good athletes. I'd be pretty optimistic if I was a San Diego State fan, yeah. and I am when they're not playing Duke. Yeah, which I, is pretty rare. I keep telling my yeah. junior in high school, you know, yeah. where I'm like, you know what? Maybe you should go to San Diego State. I'd really like to root for them in earnest. You know, I, I root now because, okay, I live in San Diego, but yeah. I don't have any connection to them. Yeah. And, you know, certainly because I live here. I've lived here, you know, 20, 30 years um, in, in San Diego County. Um but, I, you know, it, it really helps. My daughter went to ASU, you know. Yeah. I'm a big fan of ASU. Well, yeah. Herm Edwards. Yeah. And now their coach, Bobby Hurley. Oh, that's right. Bobby Hurley. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I was there. I watched Bobby and Christian. Yeah. Those days, unfortunately, are gone in the sense of that kind of senior leadership and watch what it does um, and watch how they interplay. Um, that's too bad to me for college basketball. Yeah. I just think it was – I just thought it had a little more to offer. Now we're getting some really impressive impressive performances of individual performance, and that's a hoot to watch. But that sounds a little more NBA-ish to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know, just maybe I'm an old dog and want to hold on to the past in that regard a bit more. But You're a proud dookie. I am a proud dookie. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I said it. I, I stumbled into the school. I, I mean, people laugh about this. The first day I saw Duke was the first day I stepped on campus freshman orientation. Actually, rots in the summer. Mm-hmm. I was ROTC. So I drove up, and there it was. First time I'd ever even seen it. Wow. And this is where I'm starting. 
I didn't, I, I, my calculation of where to go, you know, I, I had done okay in high school, obviously. Uh, so I had some options. Um, and I knew I, w- I wanted to go south. You know, this was my really insightful. This is the kind of things we do with our kids now. Yeah, I want to go to where it's a little warmer. Okay. Uh, my older brother had started at a small school in Florida called St. Leo College, um, and he had to leave So, after a couple of years. So that's why I think I was the first in my family to ever graduate college, But um, even though he was older. But um, – you know, so I'm thinking, well, I want to go, but maybe not quite that far. Oh, North Carolina, that sounds. Well, what's, you know, this Duke place? Okay. Uh, that's as sophisticated as I was in my college <laughs> decisions. I mean, literally. Uh, uh-huh. You know, I got into Notre Dame. My father still won't talk to me about that. He, he never went to college, <laughs> but he's an Irishman. Yeah. And he could never. How could you turn down Notre Dame? Right. He'll never forgive me for that. Um, sorry, Pop. Sorry, Pop. It's, it's, I'm thinking of the movie Rudy and the father in that fi- in that movie. Absolutely, the big time Notre Dame people. Oh, he, you know, I wouldn't. I, I mean, to this day, I, I've caught him. I'm like, you know, Duke playing Notre Dame. I go, Pop, you know who to root for, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, you are not rooting for Notre Dame. Well, I'd like to see him do good. I'm like, Pop. Good Lord. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I uh, I stumbled on this place and thought, well, whatever, four years, uh, little did I know, I'd end up returning there for law school. That kind of fell into, I was back in D.C. and was going to go to Georgetown, Is was my thought. I'm going to get out of the Navy, apply to Georgetown. Yeah. I thought I can't get into Duke. Uh, in fact, you know, and I'll say it, I, I don't know where he is. He certainly retired. The dean of whatever he was at Duke, undergrad, but he was the pre-law advisor. Okay, so okay. now I come back. I'm eight years removed from undergrad days, but I checked in with him, and I said I'm applying to law school. You know, because I was had traveled across the country and was uh, going up through Duke and stopped in, and I said I think I'll apply to Duke. He goes, you will never get into Duke. I'm hmm. like, oh, okay, Dean Wilson, thank you. Um, he's <laughs> like, yeah, no, I mean you did a fine undergrad. You know, I was like, okay, I can say it. It's like a three three five or something uh, as a yeah. Duke undergrad. I thought it was okay. Yeah, no, that will not get you into Duke law. You will. You need a three seven or higher, or three seven five or something like that. And I'm like, okay, well, whatever. And I laughed, and I'm going. And I thought I probably wanted to try to get into Georgetown and or George Washington, which I know three schools I applied to. And lo and behold, they'll do let me in. Yeah. So I never did what I was going to do: is go knock knock. Hey, Dean Wilson. Ah. Hello. <laughs> um, he was probably right in the sense of I never would have gotten in as an undergraduate. Duke, God bless him, Duke Law was saw the value in a, in a guy with eight years of military experience could add to a class that's mm-hmm. generally pretty young. I mean, most all my classmates, I was somewhat of a senior citizen in the class at 27. Um, it, you know, the average age was about 22. Really? Yes. So people went directly into law school. Directly. And they're all, you know. Magna cum laude, Princeton, you know, oh, cum wow. laude, Harvard. Yeah, I mean, they were – it was kind of a heady place to walk into. But, you know, I just – what I was surrounded with was great stuff. I mean, really bright students and incredible faculty and in a really small environment, 120 in my class. Wow. You know, I sat in a, a class with uh, – you know, here, here's one. I don't know if you'll know this. Maybe I shouldn't promote this. Uh, it, we had our small sections. You know, most law schools have this – 
So you have mandatory courses you have to take in your first year, and that's pretty rote, almost every school. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they do is break you out into a small section, and you do legal writing. And now there's only 12 people, and you're writing and watching, oh, I think I can write, and good Lord, could you have any more red back there? <laughs> Just ripping you. And then yeah. you share your papers with fellow students. Oh, oh yeah, it's, it was painful. <laughs> And there was no hiding in that class. No. Twelve of us. Yeah, right. You know? And uh, one of the guy, you know, one of the people was, um, yeah, well, two stories. And I'm talking too much for you, but uh, one, it was this young lady who had come from Princeton. Her father was in a law firm in New York. Her grandfather had been in there. Maybe even her great grandfather. I mean, you know, they she'd come from pri private prep school and all this stuff, and was brilliant. End of semester, first year, you know, I outside the library one evening, you know, I was walking out to get a Coke or something. And I come back up and she's out there and she's like, I don't want to get you. I'm like, sorry. You know, I mean, and she's in my small section. Yeah. So we knew each other. Um, and she's like, I, we're taking finals, you know, tomorrow, starting tomorrow. And we, you have no other grades, like the legal writing class we did. Yeah. But all your other grades are simply the final. The final is your grade. That's it. Wow. Yeah. There are no tests or anything. And you show up, take the final, there's your grade. And she's like, so we're taking finals tomorrow, and this will be our entire grade, basically determine our life. And you don't seem like you're, you know, at all perplexed by it. Uh, and I said, okay, well, hold on. First of all, maybe I'm not showing it. I, I'm anxious. Yeah, I'm nervous about taking, you yeah, know, these yeah. are three-hour-long exams. Mm -hmm. I, I'm nervous. I said, but – at the end of the day, where I came from, there were a few times I wasn't sure I was going to make it back to the boat at night. And ah. I said, tomorrow, I'm going to take an exam, put the pencil down, hope I did well, and probably go grab a beer. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that's going to happen. So it's all about perspective. And, and, yeah. and, and unfortunately, uh, I'm sure she probably did well and didn't show up second semester. She never came back. Uh -huh. Now, maybe she went on to finish and now she's a major partner in a big firm for yeah. all I know. But uh, I remember thinking maybe this isn't for you. Uh, I mean, if it's literally ripping you apart so much mm. that you're stressing out mm -hmm. so much over it. At some point, you, we got to keep things into perspective. The same thing as I tell Anne about this thing. Look, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. What I do want to know, and I'm talking about the campaign, is we did it our way. I put my best foot forward. I'm fine with who I represented myself to be because it is who I am, and I can live with that. I'm not going to be happy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'll still have my dog to hang out with. I'll, yeah. I'll still have a job, and I'll still be able to live in Poway so, uh, and run around and enjoy this great weather and great town and stuff like that. So I, you know, I, I try to always – Maybe being a little older and living life like I had with eight years in the Navy, it was easier to put things in perspective a little bit. So uh, so that was one story. The other was in the same small section um, was a guy who was trying to find himself. He shows up the first year. He's wearing all kinds of jewelry and so forth. And he's like, I'm, I come from Miami. You know, I know football players, you know. Da, da, da. Okay. And um, and actually, I backtrack. He He showed up. You know, like wearing a tie. Now, this was not 1987. I mean, you know, whatever. And he's 
trying to sit in the front of the class, and it was kind of too much of that guy. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, take a chill pill or whatever. The next semester, he shows up with the chains and everything. It's like, okay, what, who are you? Um, <laughs> and the second second year, now we're in second year of law school, and he's getting a lot of grief because he's talking about he's trying to become a sports agent. Oh. People are like, okay, great. And he's trying to work this guy at North Carolina Central. He's been over there, which is a, a school near us. Um uh, there in Durham, and he's there. People are dissing him left and right. And he came up to me one day, and he goes, "Look, you're you're you know one of the older guys." And he goes, "I just I don't get why people give me such grief. I'm just trying to do what I think I could do." And I just remember saying to him, "Drew, you got to." be who you are, man. And you got to, if this is what you want to do, then just go for it and don't worry about what everyone else is thinking. Exactly. Okay, I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. And I remember when we graduated the next year, he told me, you know, my little brother was there and he brought him over. He goes, I just got to tell you, your, your brother really helped me out at the time I needed it. You know, just nice. having that kind of discussion. You know who that was? Who? Drew Rosenhaus. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. The wow. most hated man in the NFL at one point. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Drew is a bright guy. And once he kind of settled into being, I'm just going to be my guy, I'm sure he's ticked off a lot of people in NFL management <laughs> for a long time, but arguably one of the most successful sports agents uh, we've seen in our time. And, uh, you know, but these are the kind of people I ran across, you know, that little did I know years and years later, I, you know, that that's where we would be. Um so little old me just wants to be a little judge in San Diego. I, I, I don't, I don't think I'll aspire to be the most prominent man in the NFL at any time soon. But uh, yeah, that's that's the story of Drew. Um, he was an inter- he's an interesting character. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He's um, so anyway. So I, I have I just had this analogy, this thought that came to me. Your career. You've talked about your career and um, you know working for the people, private practice all the experience you have, it's almost like you were in the field of 64, right? Mm. And you've been working your way and on the ballot, you're going to be in the final four. Wow. Okay. And if you advance to the championship game in November, you could be another national champ, just like Mike Krzyzewski's team. Wow. I don't know if I'll take on... uh... I, I will not put myself in the same category as Mike Krzyzewski, but uh, <laughs> if if the people of uh, this great county uh, decide that I'm the person they want to put in the seat, then I, I won't treat it as a national championship. I'll just go to work and, and do everything I can every day um, to advance justice every day Right on. for every person who walks in the courtroom. So, Pete, if people want to connect with you, is yeah. there like a website or something? Yeah. You know, we tried to make it easy. I, I have a wife who's, you know, a marketing person. Yeah. I didn't think of this. Um, we just tried to reduce it down to, you know, I'm all about Pete. Most people who really know me, yeah. you know, I get, oh, Peter F. Murray. No, it's Pete. I, you know, yeah. you can call me Peter if you like, but I go by Pete. Always have. Coach Pete. Um, uh-huh. And so no surprise, it's Pete for Judge. Uh, that's our mantra. That's our slogan. And lo and behold, it's our website. PeteForJudge.com. There you go. Simple as that. Now, there's another Pete guy running for president. There too. is another Pete. And you know what? Again, not getting into policies, yeah. but what I will say is to the degree he gets publicity, I'm fine with go Pete, go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, good luck to you in the election. Hey, John, I can't thank you enough for the time. Right this, is, this has really been a treat. Really it's, a treat. It's been fun. Even better than I really hoped. I mean, I thought, well, this will be fun. It was great. Good. This is awesome. Thank you for doing this. This is, this is a great service. 
when are we going to like put it out to the country? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, if, if, we'll see what happens. All you right. know, we're growing a little bit as we go. We'll keep going. Best wishes to you. Thanks a lot, John. All right. Appreciate it.